燃え上がれガンダムこれは本当に素晴らしいテレビシリーズです。私は本当に感じています。私はもう本当に感じています。私はもう本当に感じています。私はもう本当に感じています。私はもう本当に感じています。私はもう本当に感じています。私はもう本当に感じています。私はもう
the thematic clarity with which things go by, the economy with which the storytelling is is delivered is truly next level great. And I am kind of flabbergasted by the end of every episode at just how good this is and that, you know, Gundam obviously is a very famous and iconic series. I still did not know what I was in for watching mm-hmm. this particular anime series. And that's really amazing to me. I think it is something truly, truly special. You know, I've been going around looking at some of the different takes on this initial series online. And and as you said last week, Sean, a lot of people kind of dismiss the original Mobile Suit Gundam. They maybe go, they're like, Zeta Gundam's the one everyone should watch because it's really dark and cool or whatever. Um, But the original, you know, some people say it's dated or it's too episodic or it's like more kid-friendly, which none of that is true. But like... Mm -hmm. I think people really should give this show a chance if they haven't, whether you have any experience with anime or not. It's just, it's like, it's an amazing TV series. And I actually think looking at it in comparison to the moment we are in in American television today is surprisingly instructive. And and that's something I hope we can get into over the course of this series as well. Because I think there's a lot of lessons about serialized and episodic storytelling that this show has that like people should just take to heart because it's really well done. So I just wanted to say all that as kind of my piece before we dive into wherever you kind of want to take this today. Yeah, cool. I mean, yes, I obviously I agree with everything you said because it's, it's, I think there's something where in particularly in the West, this show is so underestimated because one, it never, really gained any traction over here in that first wave of anime. Like, it was showed in Toonami in, like, 2000, 2001, which is after Gundam Wing. Um, And I think that, like, audience was not in any way primed for what this show is. And so, like, it makes sense that people didn't kind of latch onto it. Also, the dub is... Uh, extremely questionable so that's i had a question about that because i saw a lot of comments talking about like the character of amuro or the character of char and like they're describing them in ways that like that's not that character like someone said yeah amuro you know he's just he's really geeky he's really bitchy blah 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 i'm like no he's not that's not that's not amuro at all what what the hell are you guys talking about and i i i think it goes without saying we're watching the original proper japanese version but um it made me wonder oh is the dub like a poor maybe representation of what this series is yeah i mean obviously i have not like i've only seen clips of the dub just because i was curious i've not actually like watched the whole show that way because even i'm not that you know manic about this kind of stuff um but yeah like it's you know it's a very sort of average level english language dub which is not something that i think it makes the show feel way more like it is just a saturday morning cartoon if you know what i mean than um, this show in Japanese takes itself very, very seriously, um, and the voice acting communicates that so well. And yes, so I do think some of that is like the dubbing's not great. People were introduced it because I also think it's not. I don't think Mobile Suit Gundam is a great show for you if you're like 14 years old. I think if you're younger than that, it's good. I think if you're older than that, it's good. But that age range that Gundam Wing hits really hard for, I'm not sure if Mobile Suit Gundam is going to hit really hard for that specific age range as well. Um, And so I think a lot of those factors meant that this show just kind of gets glossed over in the Western Gundam fandom in a way that in Japan, as far as I can tell, is not the case at all. But over here, it's just never kind of gotten the full respect and attention 
that obviously now both of us feel it really deserves, which has always frustrated me. And every time someone just says, oh, just watch the movies and don't bother with the show, it's like I am currently locked into um, what feels like at this point a never-ending death march with Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones is fucking not good where I am. Listen to um, our main podcast, uh, the Weekly Stuff podcast, to hear more on that. Yes, but, you know... I'm at the point where they just start deciding, eh, fuck it, Game of Thrones, every Game of Thrones episode has to be like 90 minutes long now, and not one of them has justified that length nope. at all. So, uh, and Gundam being able to put together plots that feel like are three or four episodes of Game of Thrones worth of plot put into 22 minutes but paced perfectly just shows to you how artfully and skillfully this show is put together. And especially if you watch any other series... Something like we talked about on the uh, Weekly Stuff podcast, uh, Mobile, or sorry, Armored Trooper Bottoms, which is another, another uh, mecha show from around this period. Like, Mobile Suit Gundam has so much sense of pace to it that a lot of contemporary anime and other, and like, you know, Western animated series and TV shows just don't have. And it's something that it does so exceptionally well that all episodic media should take a lot of lessons from because I'm not it's hard for me to think of any shows that do it better than Gundam does absolutely Uh, I also wanted to say on the point of dubbing this show I don't care how good your dub is the main three actors if you look at the top three characters in Gundam at least so far that would be Amuro, Shar, and Captain Bright right yes and those three are about as heavy a set of hitters as you are going to get it's Toru Furia also famous for a lot of roles but Yamcha in Dragon Ball is one of them yeah um, you have uh, Hirotaka Suzuoki as Bright, uh, the late Hirotaka Suzuoki, who was in so many great things, also happened to be in Dragon Ball. He was Tenshin Han, the original voice of Tenshin Han. And then you have Shuichi Ikeda as Shar, who we have talked about. You have waxed poetic about the, the brilliance of Ikeda-san in uh, all sorts of, of medium, but uh, including uh, Persona 5, the recent video game, yes. where he plays a pivotal role. Like, those three voices are just literally irreplaceable. And the performances mm-hmm. each one of them is giving in this show is, is properly legendary. Like, it is, it is it like legendary work for a reason. And it, it's one of those instances where I'm like, eh, there just shouldn't be a dub. Like, like, you can't replace those voices. That's yes. sacrilege. No, yeah, obviously I agree that it's just like... It's. I think this is a hard. This would be a very hard show to dub in the best of circumstances. But yeah, you have three really legendary voice actors who, for all three of whom, this is basically their first huge yes. role in anime. Since it's 1979, anime was still um, a fairly young medium at this point. So they were coming in like you know these young hotshots, and and then after this would like rise to meteoric success. All three of them. But yes. Um, Let's start diving into some Gundam stuff. Before we talk about the episodes, there's two kind of world-building points I want to talk about. There were things I kind of wanted to bring up last time, but realized the show had not quite talked about it yet. Um, Because I want to talk... We need to talk about Minovsky Particles. I have questions. Yes, they're saying Minovsky Particles like three times every episode now, so now we get to talk about it. Um, But then I also just want to point out something that is a really cool piece of world-building in Gundam which is the space colonies. Um, there's a lot of research that went into the design of the space colonies in Gundam. Um, and you can go like research, like look up some of that stuff of the actual like cylindrical design is based on um, different concepts that were were popular and are still like feasible, you know, in stuff like the 
uh, rotation of the colonies is what allows you to have like a sort like sort of pseudo artificial gravity living on the outer inner outer edge of the uh, colony wall and that kind of stuff. So all of that is really well thought out. The other thing I think is just fucking awesome, and it kind of helps give you a sense of especially when we eventually get back into space stuff in Gundam, like kind of how this is constructed is um, all the space colonies are at things called Lagrange points, which are real, real things. And this is actually something I remember I studied in a stars and galaxies class. I took back when I was like a freshman at Boulder um, where Lagrange points are gravitational points that exist in any system that has two major gravitational bodies so there are Lagrange points for, like, the Earth-Moon system, and there are Lagrange points for the Earth-Sun system, right? So if you think that the Earth revolves around the Sun, there are five different points in the kind of around that orbit where the gravitational forces of both the Earth and the Sun create areas that mean that any body at those Lagrange points are fixed relative to everything else in the system. So if you have something at Lagrange point one, which is, I think, a little bit kind of, if you're looking like from the perspective of the sun, is a little bit behind the Earth. That means that as the Earth rotates around the sun, any object at Lagrange point one is going to be at that exact point relative to the Earth and the sun in that entire orbit all the time. And so there are five of those points. All the space colonies in Mobile Suit Gundam are situated at one of the Lagrange points, which means that um, you always know exactly where those space colonies are. So if you're coming, if you're like launching from Earth or you're heading towards Earth, if you know where Earth is, you know exactly where the space colonies are always going to be. Um, and so it's a really smart little detail that tells you, and like Gundam is full of those kinds of little details, but that was one that when I realized that's what they were doing, because they kind of at some point show you a map of where some of the colonies are, it was like, holy shit, like they have really thought this out. Um, and then also, I think an important thing to note, because I see some people misunderstand this, is, um, you know, they talk about the sides. So um, the Principality of Xeon is from side three. We start the show at side seven. The sides are not individual space colonies. They are clusters of space colonies that are all at the different Lagrange points. Um, and some of them are doubled up. So some of them rotate around the Lagrange points in one direction uh, if there are multiple sides at one point, and then some of them rotate around the other way. So there's a lot of like thought and care that goes into those kinds of kind of astronomical or astrophysical elements of how the show's put together. That is one of those things where Gundam is so much more of a hard sci-fi show than I had ever expected to be, and that I think most people, even people who are fans of Gundam, give it credit for being, because there is so much thought and care going into those kinds of details in terms of how they construct the world. Absolutely. It's... Because I did not know that much about it. I've only watched 13 episodes. I have not, you know, dived this deep into it. But you can just tell watching the series that the world extends beyond the frame in so many directions, and that even if you do not understand every piece of world building that is there so far, the creators of the show absolutely do. And I think that's a really important thing to the show's success. And also that it doesn't feel the need to spell all of this out for you every step of the way, which would kind of slow the plot down and also not make complete sense because the characters would presumably understand this and not need to give you massive lore dumps, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which is also a, a, a mistake I think a lot of modern sci-fi and, and fantasy can make, especially in a televised medium where maybe you have too much time on your hands. Um, but yeah, I, I love I love hearing about that, and I am also excited to learn what the fuck Minoski particles are, because they definitely haven't explained that. So, so do, do you have any impression, Jonathan? Like, 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 what's your... If you had to try to explain to me what a Minovsky particle is or what it does, what, what they, would you say? I feel like I noticed them coming up the most in the episode where they have to get through the Earth's atmosphere and try to get down to the surface. Because they were talking about the Minovsky particles in relation to, like, atmospherics and things like that. It's, I assume it's something that powers the ship and interacts with other space objects and they have to be careful about them because i don't know like the warp drive on star trek or something i assume they could become very volatile if if misused that's kind of what i'm getting out of it but i'm not sure so that's so that's kind of one part of the, you're like hitting one part of the monovsky particles but the main point um which is not really important that you know exactly what it is um so so one like they are um part of i think how the beam technology in gundam supposed to work is oh. uh i mean effectively what it is and this is like stuff that is mostly talked about in other shows um like gundam the origin that's kind of a, does some prequel stuff they are particles that they're fictional so there's no such thing as a Minovsky particle don't go to like university and think like oh all my subatomic particles i've got like quarks and in neutrinos and Minovsky particles, of course. Um, the Higgs boson and the, and the Minovsky. We all know about it. Um, so it's it's one of those things in sci-fi. Like, I think we talk about this sometimes, um, often in relation to element zero for Mass Effect, of a really strong technique for science fiction is, like, pick one important thing that you just completely make up a bunch of bullshit about. And it's like, here's this one totally made up bullshit science thing that in no way actually exists. But this is the thing that a lot of the other elements of our sort of science fiction-y stuff hinge upon. And that if you accept this one like weird particle or whatever it is, the rest of the technology will start to make sense to you and why the world is the way it is. Um, So the Minovsky particles are particles, fictional particles that are like emitted by the sort of thermonuclear reactors that they use to power their ships and their mobile suits. Um, and then I believe they also are what are like somehow they are used to make all the beam rep- weaponry in Gundam. The main thing they do, though, and this is sort of waxed poetical about Char in I think it's episode four. It's when they're attacking Luna two and he like sneaks in uh, like in like kind of does this kind of stealth attack with his ship. Um, the reason he's able to do that is that Minovsky particles, when they ha- are create sort of like a field and there's a certain density of them, they disrupt um like radio waves and microwaves any kind of low frequency electromagnetic radiation they disrupt and so that means that radio communications and targeting systems and all of that kind of stuff in an area in like a dense minovsky particle field are not going to work properly and so that's why these ships that have these big beam cannons can't just sit like 500 miles away in space and shoot a weapon that fires at the speed of light at with like you know extreme precision and just destroy everything from that distance like this is why they need mobile suits is because every all this technology is generating all these Minovsky particles which means that anywhere there's a battle going on or there are large amounts of forces you can't use remote targeting systems you can't use radio like radar or anything like that so you need to have a weapon 
that is very is powerful enough to destroy these ships, but is agile and sort of you know has enough utility and kind of multi-purposeness to it that it can get in close be very maneuverable and also this means that people like Amuro and Shar are mostly aiming basically by like eye and using minimal targeting systems to kind of help line things up but they're mostly just like like you know they're shooting a fucking gun using a camera in a big robot hand that has a finger that pulls the trigger like it's replicating close combat human warfare as close as possible and so that's kind of what the Minovsky particle conceit is, is you don't have the kind of extreme information and surveillance technologies that you would expect based on the technology they have. Because, as Shar says in episode four, their like, technology has come so far away around that like, the tactics of warfare have actually regressed to the kinds of tactics used um, in like you know, conventional naval warfare and like ground combat. I and do so remember that's... that speech, and I loved that that moment from Shar. That's a really good scene. Yes, and so that's that's what the Minovsky particles are there for is to kind of justify why you need this kind of technology as opposed to just having big space cannons sitting around like firing super precise shots and that kind of stuff, or just taking it for granted that they get in giant robot suits. <laughs> yes, exactly. But it's I do like that they. They come up with one little tiny thing that's like, oh, this is like our own justification for why the fuck would you build this weird giant like robot suit thing that in no way, like if you have the technology to build that robot suit, you should be able to build things that would be way more efficient than those suits. But they came up with this cool thing that also then makes it so that being a mobile suit pilot is something that's really special because it's incredibly hard to do. So it creates that sense of being like, you know, a fighter pilot in World War One or whatever, where it's like the technology is kind of shit. It's extremely dangerous. You have to be incredibly skilled to be able to do this um, at all and just not die immediately. And so that helps create that sense of like these are like true ace pilots um, that like not just like you no know, random person can just jump into the Gundam and pilot it and do anything. You have to have a significant degree of skill to be able to pilot one of those things. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's all really interesting. I like learning about that. Yes. So that's 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 our our lesson for today. Um, let's move on to talking about the episodes. I think the easiest way to do this is probably chunk the episodes up because we kind of have three chunks of episodes. Well, we have. Th- Oh, do you have a... I, I just wanted to say, want to before say? we get into, like, individual episode talk, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, now that we're into the show, what the kind of week-to-week experience of it is. Okay, because yeah. I think that's interesting, just talking about, like, what do you get out of the show as a 25-minute experience? Because it's different than a lot of, you know, long-running anime, in that it is serialized in so much as the story continues week-to-week. But these episodes are really effective at being contained 25-minute experiences. And I've, I've found that surprising and also pretty invigorating in how they make a lot of the same elements recurring each week continually interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. Because it is fairly episodic and it is somewhat formulaic in so much as every episode has a fight, every episode has a, has a military sortie of some sort... And Amuro is going to have to get in that. I don't think there's a single episode where Amuro is not in the Gundam yet. And I don't know if no. that ever changes. I don't think... I think he always gets into the... If there's anything... Anytime he doesn't, there's maybe one where he's in, like, the gun cannon but doesn't get into the Gundam. Like, there's yeah. no there's no episode where Amuro does not fight someone in a, in a machine. Yes. And I think that sounds... If you just told me that at the outset, which you kind of did uh, on, on the last episode of this... 
I was like, ooh, that sounds like that could get old pretty fast. And it doesn't, and I think that's an interesting thing to talk about because the show is... Like, one thing I've been thinking about is that uh, one of my favorite series of novels is the Aubrey Maturin series by Patrick O'Brien, also known as the Master and Commander books because that's the name of the first book. Um, Those are the naval warfare novels. They're set during the Napoleonic Wars, um, and it's two British naval officers, um, Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin. Um, and Jack Aubrey is the captain of the ship, and Stephen Maturin is the surgeon, and they're best friends, and they have lots of adventures, and there's 20 of these books, and they're all fucking amazing. And part of what is so amazing about those books is that I think they have a really good kind of formula to them, which is it is a series of encounters on the sea where you follow this crew who feel very realistic in that they are competent, they're good at their jobs, but they are also humans with human failings and foibles, And they're navigating these tough naval situations and scenarios in really authentic technical detail, like Patrick O'Brien is famed for how much knowledge about naval warfare he brought to it. And you have these battles that are really fascinating because they're really built in very realistic, granular naval strategy, which is to say it is not as flashy as some series that kind of just go, would go for maybe, you know, the spectacle of it. It's very much about the process, and that's very invigorating, to me at least. I really like that detail-oriented, kind of strategy-oriented naval warfare kind of stuff. And then between those sorties, you have these vivid characters to fall back on. And I think Gundam is the same thing, but in space. It's as ridiculous as, like, some of the images are with these giant, colorful robots fighting. It's that same attention to technical detail and strategy, like... I think it's episode three or four where they go to Luna two and it's yeah, just, four. yeah. And they've just, just this big rock that they're trying to get around and they realize, Oh, Char is getting supplies over there. We could get a good hit off if we do this, this and this. And it is this like little battle that takes place built on some good planning and strategy. And they're having to execute on that or the episode where it's about getting down to earth. They're trying to cross the atmosphere of earth And Char has a plan to intercept them there because he knows the Gundam will encounter different gravity. And if he doesn't beat the Gundam, he's going to force them down onto the wrong continent. And there's just things like that where, like, I find the strategy side of it so interesting and invigorating. And it scratches that itch for me I get from naval warfare novels and things like that as well. Or, like, a really good Star Trek episode. Like, the original Mm -hmm. series does this a lot with encounters with, like, the Klingons and the Romulans in space. Um Things like that I find really interesting. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan is famous for this in how well it it shows that kind of strategic side. And I think that's something that really fuels the show week to week is they're really good at planning out those encounters. And the other side of that is that on either side of those encounters, they're really good at showing the effect it's having on the characters, particularly Amuro. But also, you know, kind of tracing for us like, like Amuro we're following all the time and he's got a pretty dark arc. You have Bright, who is, we don't know as well, but just following that pattern of, like, him trying to be the leader. He's very clearly a good leader. He was born to be a leader, but he's doing it a lot earlier than he ever anticipated, and that's interesting. And then Char, who is this wonderful mystery wrapped in an enigma of a character who has very mysterious motivations and learning more about that each episode. So I feel like... As episodic storytelling goes, it's got all the ingredients you need to make a good semi-formulaic show. Because formulaic, I think, is used prerogatively, uh, pejoratively, and it doesn't need mm-hmm. to be. There's, there's, there's a quality to formulaic storytelling that can be very good if done right. And I think Mobile Suit Gundam knows how to leverage a formula and when to break a formula. 
And all of that really fascinates me as I watch these 13 episodes because it's it's surprisingly fresh as you keep watching it. Yeah, because they never make... so Because every episode has the battle. Like, it needs to have some sort of battle. But no two battles are ever the same. They always come up with, here's, like, an interesting wrinkle. Here's an interesting scenario. Like, it's very rare that it's just like, a, oh, they put out three Zakus, and we're just going to have the Gundam go out there and have the Gundam just fight the Zakus. Like, it's never just that. There's always, like, some other thing going on. They have some alternative objective. They're doing some sort of, like, sneak tactic or something like that. They're trying to get behind enemy lines. There's always a lot more going on. And then I also think what's important is that the show is formulaic and it knows when to break the formula because it is not like a Transformers or G.I. Joe or Thundercats or all those kinds of more like 80s cartoons that were popular over here um, that have that like, okay, every single episode, He-Man is going to fight um, Skeletor or one of Skeletor's henchmen. You know, like every single episode, an Autobot is going to fight a Decepticon. Um, in Gundam, we have sort of shifting scenarios. And this is where I think when you look at the episodes, you can kind of chunk them together because the show knows when to move on from a particular kind of set of characters or plot points. Because we have episodes three, four, and five that are all like them trying to get back to Earth. Amro is sort of learning how to use the Gundam. And in all three of those episodes, Amro fights Char in some capacity. Then we have episodes 6 through 11, and that's all the stuff on Earth with Garma. And there, they almost never fight Char directly, because they're mostly fighting Garma. Garma's not really a, a Zaku pilot. He's mostly using other weapons. And so, and then you have all the amazing intrigue between Char and Garma and all that stuff. But you're not, while Char is still in the show, it's not every single episode we just go and fight Char, and here's a fight between the Gundam and Char's red Zaku. You're mixing that up. And then now we have sort of for this, if you chunk these episodes together, 12 and 13 are kind of like the epilogue and a teaser of what's to come where like I will just go ahead and say because I don't think it's really a spoiler for the next batch of episodes that we'll watch 14 to 25. Char is not really in those episodes like he might pop up a little bit here and there, but he's not actively chasing the white base anymore. He's been demoted after all the shit with Garma's happened. And I noticed I think it's episode 13 is the first episode that doesn't have a single appearance by Char. He is, exactly. he is in 1 through 12. He's not always in them prominently, but he's there. And he is, like, conspicuously absent in 13. I think the last time we saw him was in the bar where he's drinking but still has cool sunglasses on to block his face. Yes. So so Char will obviously come back and he's a really major character. But the show knows that you can't just have Amuro and Char fight every single episode. Because then that makes it that when Amuro and Char start fighting, it's really boring. So when you move away from that... And now we have new characters, like, um, we'll talk about him a little bit when we get to episode 12, and for uh, next chunk, we have Rambo Rao, who's going to be a different Xeon uh, commanding officer that they fight multiple times. So they know how to switch things up and change the scenarios. Um, We're changing, like, setting constantly. We're going from space to Earth and moving around different areas of Earth, which we'll be on for a little bit. Um, And so all those things, I think, help keep that core formula structure of... We have the white base and our crew. They encounter some sort of problem. Amuro has to sortie in the Gundam and and take care of it. And that's, you know, the the core structure of almost every single episode. There's a couple of exceptions, um, like episode 13, that move away from that in some pretty significant ways. But generally, that's what the backbone of almost every single episode. But they know that all the other pieces around that need to be shifted around 
um, in different ways to keep that formula interesting. And I think that's one of the main keys to keeping this um, really tight. Again, like 22-minute episodes, it's a really tight episodic structure, um, but it makes it way more exciting and way more fun for me to watch than watching like a 90-minute meandering whatever episode of something of a show like Game of Thrones that doesn't really know what it's doing. It just has good actors, a lot of money, and like really good production staff and, and directors and stuff. And I've also I've said this to you off the air, Sean, but it has this quality where this is not an anime I can sit down and binge. This is not one personally where I can sit down and watch three or four episodes. I've done, I think, most two at a time because every episode is, I said this on Twitter, a full three-course meal. Like, you get a full, like, serving of Gundam. You feel like you have seen a story. You have seen a chapter in these characters' lives. You have seen something progress. And when it's over, I usually need to, like, kind of sit with it, process it, because... Again, as we talked about last week, the subject matter here is pretty heavy stuff. And even in lighter episodes, of which there are some here that not lighter necessarily in that they're like there's no like comedy built episodes so far, but there are ones that just don't get quite as into the weeds with the darkness of the show. Even then, like like there's enough in terms of like how much strategy you see going on, how interesting the animation is. There's just things I feel like I need to take a step back from and process and I view that, and this is to be clear, a quality of the show for me. This is not a drawback. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I feel like I need to savor. If if I you know gorge myself on Gundam, I, I think I wouldn't like it as much. And that you know, it's a show that aired weekly. That's good. That's like that means that this is kind of the rare anime where I think if you watched it week to week, you'd be perfectly satisfied. Where if you you know there are shows I love. Like, you know, Dragon Ball, if you tried to watch that week to week, it'd be fucking torture. <laughs> like, it was, yes. As someone who watched it week to week in the Toonami days, it was hard to watch it like that sometimes. Or Dragon Ball Super when it was on Crunchyroll. Uh, I know you and me both just waited until there were chunks of episodes, or in my case, the whole series, because that's just it's not a show that that particularly works week to week. And that's fine. That's what that show is. But Gundam is really good, I feel like, at if, if I were in 1979 and watching this week to week, I would be very excited every day it aired, but I would also feel satisfied for the week to come. Yes, and, and that reminds me of something I should mention, because I know I said it on the Weekly Stuff podcast, um, but, but people might not have listened to that one, um, is last Weekly Suit Gundam episode... I said that I was only going to watch a couple of the episodes that, like, I was just going to pick out my favorites and watch those because I did watch all the way through Mobile Suit Gundam for the second time a couple of months ago. Um, And then that, a very quickly, that just completely fell apart where I think it was literally that night after we recorded that episode. I was like, man, Gundam's really good. I'm going to watch, yeah, fuck it, I'll just watch episode three. I remember thinking episode three was good, and I watched that, and then I watched episode four that night, and I was like... I think I'm going to watch all the rest of these. Like, I think I'm just like, why not? Um, because especially since it makes it easier since you're not binging it, I don't have to binge it. So that means that it's like, okay, yeah, like I'll just watch one or two episodes every other night. And it's like this, and it's, it's something, it like speaks to the quality of Gundam that I can watch it again so soon after having watched it for a second time. And especially knowing that we are going to, we're doing a podcast on it. So I'm like, Look, look, watching in a slight different way because I'm trying to pick out like, oh, this is something I want to mention. Like, here's a good scene. Here's a good moment. Um, it's really, it's I'm like so impressed by how much fun I'm still having watching the show so quickly after having just watched it because I don't usually do that. I'm not the kind of person that just like watches The Office or something like that on repeat like my brother does. Like he has a couple of shows that he just watches over and over. That's not usually what I do. Um, but 
that is what I will do for Gundam because Gundam's really fucking good. Because I will also say Gundam is a show I have to focus on. This is not a show I watch while I am having dinner or if I'm going to be on my phone or anything like that. And it's not just because it's subtitled and I'm reading it and, and that you know you, it's harder to look away. I don't want to look away. I don't want to focus on anything else. It's 25 minutes where I am just locked into the show. And, you know, I think that's a fairly rare sensation these days, especially as I think a lot of shows are just built with more and more downtime in them um, for various reasons. And this is one where I, I want to appreciate the animation, which is unbelievably gorgeous for a weekly anime TV series. You know, it's a little up and down as every anime inevitably is. But even like, I think it was episode, it's the episode where Iselina it's like Isolina's Revenge, or so. it's Isolina Loves Remains. It's episode eleven, yes. which I just a fucking great title. I think it's that one where Garma's Fate, the one before it, you could tell had a lot put into the animation. Like Garma's Fate was like they earmarked that one, like this is special. And yes. then like Isolina Loves Remains has some pretty messy character animation in it. I noticed just some like off model stuff, some like moments where they they did not have full movement. But the backgrounds were still just, like, blowing my mind because this show has really lovely, you know, it's that very late 70s, early 80s, you know, I think a lot of people associate this style with, like, the early works of Hayao Miyazaki, if you've seen that over here, but, like, this kind of almost watercolor-esque kind of backgrounds mm-hmm. um, where it is it is not as detailed as you think it is, but it gives such a good impression of detail, that's why you kind of miss it. Um, there is some kind of eye candy on display in every episode. And, again, there's a lot of weekly anime series where you would not say that about. So, uh, you know, that's something I'm focusing on. I'm appreciating the voice acting. The music is surprisingly good throughout. The music's so good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. like most Gundam shows, that's something that, like, even some of the bad Gundam shows have really good soundtracks. They've always been really good about that. But this one in particular, there's some... In, There's some really good music in this show. In episode 13, Coming Home, when Amuro is dealing with the fallout of his mother getting mad at him for murdering a guy, um, the music there just, it tears your heart out. And it's it's mm-hmm. a theme you've heard before. Like, this is, as with most anime, it's a small set of music that you hear over and over again, but it is used in ways that constantly bring out new things in the music, I think. So, just wanted to say all that, too, of, like, it's a show worth taking the time to focus on. Absolutely. So let's dig into some of these episodes. As I was saying earlier, like I think probably the easiest way to do this um, is to chunk these episodes up. So for I think three, four, and five, those are the the, the episode where Shar is getting episode three. Shar is getting resupplied, um, and so the white base decides to do a preemptive attack. Um, then episode four is them getting to Luna two, and episode five is the atmospheric reentry episode. Um, which is an episode so fucking cool that basically every single Gundam series post that episode, which is every Gundam series, I guess, because this is the first one, um, has to have the atmospheric reentry episode because having mobile suits fight while they're trying to fight gravity and like get down to Earth is a really cool concept. It's so, so good. Yeah. I it's kind of funny. I was taking note as I was watching of like I was trying to figure out what's the best episode in this batch. And I couldn't fucking tell you because there's so many good ones. But, like, five is one I noted as, like, that's going to be hard to top. The re-entry to Earth episode. Then there's the one where um, they... I think it's called Winds of War. Yeah, it's episode Mm -hmm. eight. And it's where they have this little ceasefire um, between the white base and the Xeon forces. And the white base decides to be tricky about it. And they put the Gundam in the little, like, transport pod. And it's really cool. And then there was Garma's Fate, and I'm like, they're not going to top Garma's Fate. That was The end of that episode is amazing. And then episode 13, and it's just like, oh my god. So, like, I would go, like, you know, 1, 5, 8, 10, 13, and I'm like, okay, well, that's like half the episodes we've watched. They're all really good. 
yes, no, Gundam Gundam is really, really fucking good. Um, so yeah, so for for um, the I, one point I really love about episode three where they're they're attacking the resupply ship. There's a couple of things there I love. I love that you start to see that's where Amuro because they this is the first time that they are on the attack in any way. Like overall, they're still on the run. But they take this moment to be like, oh, well, shit, if he's getting resupplied, we need to disrupt that in some way or we're completely screwed. Because the only reason why the white base survives this chunk of episodes is because Char has almost no supplies. He's got a handful of Zaku's, um, like no ammo, no backup or anything. Um, and then once he does have access to resources, he doesn't. He's not committed to destroying the white base. He's just fucking around with Garma. So it's the only if if Char was like got the resources and was committed to defeating the white base for this whole chunk of episodes, they would have been dead in like episode five or something. Um, so they decide to go on the offensive, and I like how that then shifts for Amuro in that episode. That's where he comes up with the oh like we shouldn't just go straight at them. Let's go around the side of the asteroid to come in from be so the sun is coming from behind us and do like a sneak attack that way. And it's the first time you see Amro take the initiative like that. And he's, you know, he's still a rookie at this stuff, but he clearly is thinking about tactics and he's thinking about like he, he Amro is a really, really smart guy. And so now he's applying the intelligence that he's only usually applied to mechanics to thinking about tactics and strategy. And when he does that, like, he, he needs to gain a lot more experience at it, but you start to see how it's like, oh, he's not just some kid in the Gundam. Like, he could be, like, the best soldier out here. Like, he could eventually get to the level that he would be equal to Shard, not just because of the Gundam, but because of who he is. And, you like, this is where he starts taking that step is in Episode 3, and I like that a lot. Absolutely. And Episode 3 is where I realized this is a great naval novel in space. Because mm -hmm. of and it's exactly the thing you talked about, where it is is Amuro deciding to we're going to go with the sun and we're going to stay on this trajectory. Every book about ships on the high seas has a scene about that. It is just it is classic like naval tactics, and it is like yes, this is this is so my jam. I fucking love it. Yes, that episode also has the resupply officer guy who's just like, I love that guy. He's obviously died. He's, you know, one of the mini Zaku or uh, Zeon soldiers that gets killed at the end of the episode they feature in. Um, but he's like so committed to like, no, Char, you're good. Like, this is the pride of the resupply core. You are getting your Zakus. You're getting your food. Like, I don't care. Like, he jumps into um, what is a Zaku 1. So all the Zakus that we normally see are technically this, like, Zaku 2s. So they're, like, the updated model. He gets in, like, the original, like, this big, bulky, shitty-looking mobile suit. Is like, it, with no weapon, he's like, no, like, we're going to do this. He's like, I'm going to fend off this damn Earth Federation mobile suit. And, of course, you know, he, he, he has better moves than Amuro, but Amuro has the Gundam, so he just eviscerates that fucking dude. But he's very cool. Now that we're talking about it, I'm going to throw episode three on my list of great episodes mm -hmm. as well, because I agree. I, I, I had kind of forgotten about that, um, partially because I didn't remember this was all the same episode. Episode three is such a big, meaty episode of Gundam. But yes, I all of that stuff with the resupply ship and Char, like, Char is pretty, you know, laissez-faire about all of this because he's got bigger plans. The white base is not his main concern in life. And so, like, he's like, no, we don't we don't need to go this crazy with it, guys. And the resupply dude's like, no, we're going to, to the death, I will resupply your ship. And it is, it is fantastic. 
Yes, and that's that's something that's like a trend with all of these is that in my memory, almost all of these episodes are like, oh, yeah, they must have been on like Luna 2 for like three episodes in Gundam, right? Like that's yes. because any modern anime series and like in like most post Gundam and Gundam shows, like if you watched Iron Blooded Orphans, like the most recent one, that would be like a three to four episode arc. Like that would not be in one episode, which is episode four. They go to Luna 2. They meet up with... It's the first time they've met any other Earth Federation people. Um, I think it's Commander Joaquin. Um, he locks them up because they're all... Most of them are civilians. And they have all seen, like, top secret Federation weapons that they're not supposed to see. So he throws them in the brig. Then Char launches a sneak attack. In the middle of the sneak attack, the power goes out. So the White Base crew escapes. They get back onto the White Base. Um, Char does the coolest thing... Okay, the Char does a lot of... This is not the coolest thing Char does. Because I, like, I'm going to need to catch my superlatives. Because Char does a lot of really cool things. This is the episode where one of the command ships is leaving the hangar bay. And Char detonates explosives that cause the ship to spin sideways and get stuck in the hangar bay. So nobody else can leave. And it's so cool. It's such a good bit of strategy. So it's like everybody is stuck there. Then the white base, they get walking on the white base. They decide to eviscerate that ship and blow it up with the white base's guns. And use that opportunity to escape. All of that is in one fucking episode in 22 minutes. And they still have time in that episode to have a scene in the middle where they're all, all the white-based crew, or I guess it's all the men because they separated out the men and the women. They're all, all the guys are in one cell. And Amuro is like drawing one of the Gundam circuits in his like masked potatoes and talking to them about like, no, this is why the Gundam is so much better. It's got this learning computer and it's like, it's an episode that has so much plot shit it has to do, and they still find this fun little moment to have Amro show off who he is and explain the stuff both to the audience, but also the other crew members around them. Like, episode four is not one of my favorite episodes of Gundam, it's a good one, but it, it is a good illustration of how this show is able to take, again, what, like in Game of Thrones, that would be four fucking episodes would be dealing with, oh, we got captured, and we get that would be a whole like season later. That would be yeah. a whole season of Game of Thrones. For whatever character's story that was, you would go back for five episodes, they would be in their cell, Amuro drawing in his mashed potatoes would be a full-blown story arc, yes. Yes, and this just crams it all into 22 minutes, and it's fucking perfect. It is fucking perfect, and that is one where I totally agree with you. They all feel like three or four episodes to me, because I remember you were talking about Luna 2 earlier just in this episode, and I'm like, they were at Luna 2 for like five episodes, right? And I'm like, no, that was episode four, and I'm like, that was only episode four? I, I watched this a week ago, Sean. Like, this is <laughs> new to me, and it's like, yeah, that felt like... And that's what I mean when I say every episode is like a full three-course meal. I think it was probably after episode four or five where I tweeted that because three, four, and five are all big episodes of Gundam. Yes, and and this is the third time I have seen Escape from Luna Two, and and before I watched it, if you had asked me, I would have sworn there they there there are two episodes on Luna Two. There has to be two episodes on Luna Two. There's no way. That like they they go to Luna Two and escape Luna Two in the same episode. That's impossible. It's like nope. This is the third time I've watched it. And I always forget. It's like no. Like that's all one fucking episode. But it's so jam packed that it feels like it's two in your memory. It's cool. Absolutely. Uh, and then anything more to say about episode five, the reentry to Earth? Um, it's just such a fucking cool episode. Just everything about the like the that's where that's like one of those good like hard sci-fi kind of episodes where they kind of cheated a little bit where the Gundam has its like weird heat film 
um, which is a technology. <laughs> I that... love the heat filmy. Yeah. It's like he pulls out fucking Saran wrap. It's so yes. good. Post this episode, Gundam just sort of ignores that that because it's like because in Zeta Gundam they have another atmospheric reentry episode and they just like never address that that was a thing that the original Gundam had because it's like that's way too easy and convenient because uh, obviously when they're making this they didn't think that they're ever gonna this was gonna be a franchise or anything they're just like yeah fuck it you have to come up with something it's the um, fifth they, episode yeah they were not thinking long term <laughs> yes so so they kind of retcon away that weird heat film thing but just the whole um because you have the like the other zaku pilot that's like going and he's like no i'm going to get the gundam and then he goes too far and gets caught too deep into earth's gravity well and he burns up like all of that is like just the gravitational mechanics of it are so cool that is also the episode where we get um one of my favorite weird things in mobile suit gundam which is the gundam hammer which is the big fucking flail thing that they launch out that the gundam has and he's using this like it's the it's very dumb, and I think this is another thing. I think the movies kind of retcon away the Gundam Hammer because Tomino was like the, the the main sort of creative lead on the show. Is like ah, this is too super robot. I don't like it that much. But I love the idea they just like made this big fucking like cast iron ball with massive spikes, and just because of the sheer size of the Gundam, something that's big and dumb like that is like truly feels like a weapon of like just like true destruction and power it's like i'm just gonna swing this giant fucking ball around with my massive gundam and it's very cool i completely agree as someone who loves giant you know mace weaponry in like fantasy games i was down for it i love the gundam hammer i get why tomino might have been later on like that's something we'll cut but i uh, i love it it's it's yes. it's dumb and fun in an episode that is very smart um, and, like, I also just think the kicker of that episode where you, like, they are against such long odds. Amuro very nearly dies because he has mm. fucked up and not gone back to base when Bright is urging him, get back to base, get back to base. He only survives because of the heat film and his own wits. And, you know, they have barely gotten out of these high, this is the closest Char comes in the early going to destroying them. And then Char is talking to Garma and is like, no, this is a, they're on the wrong continent. This was totally my plan. And it's like, oh, right, Char is a motherfucker. That was an amazing plan because he couldn't lose, basically, was his plan. Mm-hmm. Like, either way, I'm going to fuck these guys. And it is – and, like, kicking off that next phase of episodes where now they are – they're on Earth. They got to where they're going. Whoops, wrong continent. Zeon controls this continent. That is such a great idea and such a great – kicker to a really strong episode i think yes and it's just the whole arc of these three episodes of we just got to get back to earth and there's this sense of you know there's so much urgency and desperation i mean throughout this whole show but particularly these episodes where they're like they're so on the defensive they're so just like on the run trying to get away from all this stuff um and there's this sense of oh once they get to earth you know they're part of the earth federation forces that means that they can get resupplied like maybe like all these civilians can get offloaded and stuff like that um and it'll be fine yeah and then finding out that char because char is like an extremely experienced and and brilliant military commander he has had this whole other plan of "Eh, if i don't blow them up i'm at least going to divert their trajectory enough to put them into our space so that we can keep on hitting them um and yeah like that whole sense of oh shit we like you you feel like the white base got a big win kind of the first time ever it's like really nope it's the your your suffering is going to be prolonged and they are still not like you know bad earth federation forces they are still on the run even where we're at so char definitely fucked him on that one 
Absolutely. It is so good. And Sean, can you off the top of your head think of another TV show, anime, live action, whatever, that does more in its first five episodes than this one does? No. I, yeah, I, no. I'm racking my brain and like just those five episodes. Because again, I, if you had quizzed me like when is the Earth re-entry, I would have said that's like episode eight or nine, right? Even though I know full well Garma dies in ten and I know it's not only two episodes of fighting with Garma. But just like my brain is skewered by this. Like I can't. That doesn't make sense that all that happens in five episodes. And that it works. Like, that shouldn't work. That's too much. You would say, objectively, that's too much story. But they make it work. And, and that's amazing. Yes. Yeah. It's it's a really great stretch there um, of episodes. And again, the, the atmospheric reentry episode is so good that literally every other Gundam... Like, not, I don't think it's absolutely every Gundam show. The vast majority of other Gundam shows just kind of copy that episode to do something slightly different with it. But... Yeah, All right. Great, great stretch. Before we move on to the next stretch, should we take a quick break? Let's take a quick, quick, uh, quick, quick break and let's get that show! Show! Okay, so Sean, this next stretch, the white base versus Garma. Before we get into all that, I have a question. Okay. I'm sure this was explained, but I'm, I feel like I missed it. Why is the white base called the Trojan Horse? Okay, so this is this is one of my the things I really love about this show is the sort of continuity of information. The Zeons have no fucking clue what the white base is actually called because how would they? It's a secret uh, Earth Federation military project. So the Trojan horse or Mokuba, which literally just means wooden horse, um, is just the Zeon code name for it. Okay, so that's that's the Zeon forces always call the Trojan horse. Not like that's not a reference to like the actual Trojan horse of like, oh, it is a Trojan horse that's like that military strategy concept. It's just, I think it's because it like has like, the, I think it's like that big tower kind of has a vaguely like horse-shaped head look to it. Um, I think that's probably why they call it Mokuba. Um, but yes, that's why. And so that's something fun to pay attention to. Like it's not stuff that comes up till later, but it's fun to get that sense of like, oh, how much do the Zeon forces actually know about the, all the stuff that the Earth Federation people have. Because most shows just kind of... Either they just completely ignore it and, you know, because if it's a kid's show, they just like, eh, somehow they know what it's called, like, off-screen. They just learned it. Or they have some moment early on in the episode where that information is, like, exposed. Um, but in this case, I like that they keep that, like, nope. How the fuck would they know what the white base is called? They just have some weird code name for it. It just happens to be Bokuba. Because they also don't know it's called a Gundam, right? You don't hear the Xeon no. people ever say the word Gundam. They're saying... No, they call it the Earth Federation mobile suit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like that, too. Yeah, okay, that makes more sense. Um, there's obviously there's like a certain connotation in the subtitles to using the term Trojan horse that is a little different, but yeah, I get that. Okay. Um, yes. it was interesting to me because, and it's also just like, it's a good entree into talking about the show because I feel like this is the stretch of episodes where you start to realize the show itself is quite the Trojan horse in terms mm -hmm. of it comes in one appearance package, but it is a very different thing under the surface as before we even get to episode 10, we're dealing with full-blown PTSD. People are dying. Amuro's killing a lot of people. And uh, and Shar's got plans. Yeah, so I think probably the easiest way... We, we can probably go back through and like pick out some moments from these episodes. But this is a big chunk, and I think it probably would be easier just to... like Let's go through some of the characters and talk about 
kind of what they're doing in this chunk of episodes and like like because this is where we start getting a lot more character development kind of stuff so yeah let's so let's talk about our our gundam boy the boy in the death machine amuro ray yeah, this is the stretch where he goes from like yeah like i'm like fighting and i'm really desperate and i don't want to be doing this to yes he is having full breakdowns he has he has ptsd um, like in the core fighters escape episode episode seven that's the one where he like launches from the in the core fighter with like extra power and he just passes out in the cockpit which is always to say like oh jesus christ that's a shocking like image to have um but yeah like throughout these this stretch of episodes he's becoming more and more sort of frantic and sweaty and desperate until eventually was it is it fly gundam is the episode where he's just like no fuck this i just don't want to know i'm just not going to go out i'm not a soldier this is not my job like i get someone else to do it like if you want to do it bright you go do it someone else pilot this fucking thing i'm not going to do it i don't want to do it absolutely um it is startling to see unfold this is another place where i just fundamentally some of the like reviews i've seen online for like the blu-ray sets or recent re-releases of the show people are like yeah, Amuro, you know, he's not that interesting. He's just, he's the stock character in a mecha anime who doesn't really want to pilot. He's reluctant to pilot, but he does it anyway. And I'm like, that is a horrible description of Amuro's character arc. It's not reluctance. It's, he's actually very gung-ho about it when he's in the ship and, like, piloting it. And he is fully on board generally with, like, doing the job and getting it done right. He's 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 very good at it and communicative. Except when he's dealing with, like, full-blown PTSD in... Which is extra startling to see in the year 1979 in an anime. Mm-hmm. Like, that is something I feel like we as a culture have only recently even had the words for, let alone shown, like, accurately on screen. And 1979, you just think about that, like, that's before we even have Vietnam movies, really, that are doing this well. Like, that's the year of the deer hunter. Like, that's that's like America is just starting to figure out, like, how the fuck do we talk about this? And and this is, like, one of the best portraits of that I've ever seen, where he's having flashbacks, he's having night terrors, mm-hmm. he is literally, it's, it's in episode nine, it's not just he's angry and being like, fuck you, you do it, it's, he can't, he cannot bring himself to make the motions to go do it, it is too hard, and it only really gets darker from there in episodes 12 and 13, after he watches Isolina kill herself, and all this stuff goes down. Um, it's a really amazing character arc. And I've also, we've got to talk about Toru Furia. His performance is out of this world because I know him best as Yamcha in Dragon Ball. And he is great. Yamcha in Japanese is a phenomenal comic performance by Toru Furia. And it's honestly only gotten better over the years as Yamcha has become less relevant. But the anime staff in particular in Super and some of the movies have found ways to put Yamcha back in. And Toru Furia is like, this is great. The weight of the show is not on me at all. I just get to have fun. And he is such a fun actor in those episodes. I'm thinking particularly of the baseball episode of Dragon Ball Mm -hmm. Super. Um, He's so funny. Amuro is not a funny performance. But it is so passionate. And like when he's dealing with stuff, like there's a raw quality to the voice acting here that like... This is one reason I don't think you could dub Gundam effectively is I've never seen an anime dub that does not have, at least in some places, a certain forced quality where you feel a disconnect between the actor and the the character, in part just because it was animated for one language and voiced in another. There's just, there's that separation, but like, I feel like 
the voice Furia gives it has such a direct line to the soul of this character, it's irreplaceable. And and in episodes 9 and 12 is where I, I noticed it probably the most. And then 13, when he has the whole speech about his, his mother. We'll, we'll get there later, obviously, but, like, what a performance. Yeah, absolutely. Because there is... There, there's something just very raw, and it's true about a lot of the voice acting in, in this show in particular. And I think it's like because I've been like thinking about it and kind of like looking it up and in, in looking at writing about it in like different acting like like actors sort of histories. Is I feel like Mobile Suit Gundam as a show is at an interesting kind of inflection point in the history of voice acting in Japan, where it is like most. Because you can see this from a lot of the other actors on Mobile Suit Gundam, and you can see it from shows pre-Mobile Suit Gundam and a little bit post. Like, again, like Armored Trooper Bottoms is something I watched recently, so it's, like, in my head. And there are a couple of small, smaller actors from Mobile Suit Gundam, like the guy who plays Giran Zabi has played a role in Bottoms and stuff, that is, like... They, it's like Japanese voice acting is not quite there yet in terms of like the style of of it being slightly over the top, um, but also like the actors having a very clear like distinctive voice to them, just like the quality of their voice. Like Todu Furia has a very distinctive iconic voice. Nobody sounds like that guy. Like he's the kind of guy that like you know you can do impressions of because his voice is so distinctive and so strong. And a lot of the other, and that's how most voice acting in Japanese is now. Like, like, it, all, like any character, any random character, will have that quality to them. And in Gundam, it's only a handful of actors are really like who are these young actors that are going to become like standouts in what is going to become you know the anime industry as we know it as that develops through the eighties. Who are like Furia and who are Ikeda? Who are these guys who have these very distinctive voices? And bring in that slightly over the top style um, that's you know that you would think of, but is also very raw and very emotional. And there's something also about like the actual audio recordings and like what has survived um, is a little bit degraded. Where it's like the audio like peaks in ways and like kind of crackles in ways that are like technically deficiencies in the audio, but I think actually add to like the intensity of some of it. And there are there are, like a lot of Amaro's screams and there's one once we get to the last part the last stretch of episodes there's a scream in particular um that I'll want to point out but but in these episodes like when when Amaro is desperate and shouting and like you know is in that mode the audio like physically crackles in a way that the very clear high definition audio that's like a 5.1 mix that would be on a show you hear today just doesn't have that kind of quality to it and there's something about it that I really really love in this show Oh, absolutely. Um, and when you're talking about like the over-the-top quality, I mean, this is also just a tradition of Japanese live-action acting. Exactly. That we're yes. coming, you know, um, you look at like any Kurosawa movie, for instance, and you know there are all sorts of actors in those you would not accuse of being subtle, but they're phenomenal performances, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Toshiro Mifune is like in Seven Samurai. It is one of the most over-the-top performances of all time. It is also one of the best. 10 performances ever given in the medium of cinema. So, like, you know, and it's in competition with other <laughs> Mifune performances uh, of a similar style. So, like, I think there is something to that where, you know, just embracing a certain kind of acting, it does not have to necessarily be super realistic, but it has to be expressive and representational, and it does that phenomenally well. Yes, and that's that's the quality that Amro has. Because I'm 100% with you. I have never understood... 
a lot of the Western fandom's sort of distaste for Amro in some ways, um, because he's like he's my favorite Gundam protagonist. I think there's there's Judo Ashta from Double Zeta is also very good. I mean, he's an interesting character, but there's something about Amro. Amro is the because you know almost every single Gundam show the protagonist is a teenage boy because that's you know the the genre that's what they set up. Um, because also all the people being like, oh, he's just a stock, like he's just one of those stock mecha protagonists that doesn't want to get in the, the mobile suit because he has trauma or whatever. It's like Amro is the character that invented that fucking archetype. So, you know, yeah. all those fucking Neon Justice Evangelion motherfuckers, like this did it first and it does it better. Um, and, and but yeah, so he, he sort of invents that archetype, but there is something that they do with it that is so much more natural and thoughtful and he feels like a kid to me like in most of the other like teenage protagonists in other Gundam shows they don't quite feel like kids per se um like Camille from Zeta Gundam there are moments where I get what they're going for with him having this like adolescent qualities but the actual acting and the character just never quite reads to me as oh this is someone who's like 15 or 16 years old Amro feels like a kid Yes. Um, always to me. And and that's one of the things that allows some of those moments in, in stuff like um, when he has his, his breakdowns in episode 9 or 12 in 13, they feel like really emotionally powerful because I think he communicates so much of the youth of this person. Um, and that's both in the character design. I think they do a good job of making him look like a kid. And then Toru Furia in his performance, making him sound and feel like an actual adolescent dealing with things that he shouldn't have to deal with yeah a couple of notes on that so furio was 25 when they did this show so he was fairly young to begin with but if you told me he was like 17 when he did this i could believe it he, he sounds yeah. that young i also think i have to imagine again i i have not heard the dub the versions we're watching actually have it so maybe i should switch the audio around and look at it sometime um, can if you want to yeah i mean not to like watch whole episodes but just to feel because I think it would be easy to look at Amaro and look at the scenario of the TV show and think, this is Luke Skywalker or something like that, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's the archetype. And he's nothing like Luke Skywalker. But if you give him a generic white boy voice, you know, from the West, and you put him on Saturday morning on Cartoon Network or something, I could see people like being like, this is a shitty version of Luke Skywalker. Because I guess if that's your standard, yes, he is. This Luke Skywalker is a guy who sees his uncle and aunt who raised him burned alive in front of him and goes, all right, I'm going to go be a Jedi. And never thinks about it again. Yeah. And, and Amuro is someone who, you know, murders a bunch of people in a giant mech suit and then goes back and has night terrors about it and then doesn't want to fly again in the morning. And one of those is a much more challenging character type to to watch and to digest. And I think it is interesting how much this show and Amaro in particular are working, I feel like, in opposition to the to the dominant archetypes of these kinds of young male protagonists. Like, this is not a Flash Gordon situation or a Star Wars or any of those kind of, like, older space serials that are obviously part of what got Mobile Suit Gundam greenlit in the first place, if we're being fully honest, right? Like, oh, yeah. yeah like, it's, you know, there's no coincidence that there are beam sabers in Gundam, and this yes. came out two years after the original Star Wars. Like, some of the influences are very clear. 
they're very clear, but it's also like, what is he doing with these those beam sabers? Like the first time he ever uses one in episode one, he accidentally cuts through like a nuclear reactor and blows up a fucking robot and kills a dude. And then he has to be like, I got to be more careful when I kill the next dude, right? So yeah. like, I think that's part of it is that Amuro is, he, he's not necessarily a character you just, you love and admire in the way a lot of, I think, protagonists in this kind of media are. What you do is you, you empathize with him deeply on a human level, and I find that really compelling. Because yeah, he, a lot of the characters here are more, they're a little at a further distance. Amuro is the one you have a really dynamic human connection to in this show. And I think it's very smart that they decide to focus on one for that reason, and that everyone else you come to love, but in different ways and at a greater distance. Um but what they do with Amr, I agree. I think it's really... I can't speak to, like, other Gundam shows, but I find him very compelling. Yeah. It's... it's He's... he's. I, I think he's so the heart of this show, and I think he represents what this show... It, like, what the show is struggling with, like, very deliberately struggling with. This is not, like, a, a failure of the show in that it's struggling with this. It's that, like, this is a struggle that we all have, um, particularly in our, like, relationship to war and masculinity is there are there's these two coins of like on the one side as Amuro continues to pilot the Gundam gets in more battles he improves he gets more mature he's he's sort of growing up becoming more effective more powerful and becoming in his own way more empowered in in sort of fits and starts and there's something very invigorating to see Amro be able to succeed in these really challenging scenarios and and him to learn from those experiences and then at the same time there's this constant understanding of these things that he's doing and the situation he is in is taking a toll on him that will never go away, right? That like he, this is changing him as a person fundamentally in a way he will never be able to shake off. He will never be able to go back to being the kind of person he was before he got into that mobile suit. Um, he will always be dealing with these traumas for the rest of his life. And, he, and he's inflicting traumas on other people as well which is one of the main points of that Iselina episode is him realizing for the first time oh shit right like this is someone who wants revenge on me personally because I killed the person like he doesn't know anything about her but he knows he's killed a lot of people and we know that he killed like the person that she loves the most in the world and so he's while he's we understand the reasons why he needs to be doing all the things he's doing the things he's doing is creating trauma and creating more people that the creating more situations that are the kinds of situations that put like have made him what the, the way he is now and doing that to other people in the world as well and so gundam is always struggling between both of these things of where you want to root for amuro you want amuro to succeed because you like him and you want to see him survive and get better at the same time you're always horrified by the cost that all of these things that he has to do actually is on him and the world around him and that's to me the heart of gundam Absolutely, and one of the remarkable, one of the many remarkable things about episode 13 um, is how definitively it feels like it closes the door to a certain kind of arc for that character, where if you at any point in the first 12 episodes thought this might be a series where Amuro defeats Shar, saves the Federation, defeats Zeon goes home, establishes a new home, marries Frau Bo, has a bunch of kids and grows old and is happy. I feel like episode 13, without saying it, 
pretty much comes out and says, this is not going to go the way you think. That is not an option for this human being. That yeah. happy ending is just... And I'm saying this without future knowledge. I'm a first-time Gundam viewer. I could be totally wrong. But Sean, am I wrong? Is that actually how Gundam ends? Does he get super happy and have a family? No no comment. We'll see. We'll okay. see when we get to the end of Mobile Suit Gundam and... And, and maybe beyond, who knows? Yeah, it just feels to me like it's it's telling you that is not an option anymore. When you talk I, about, yeah, like, I will say that Gundam at no point for in Universal Century Gundam ever betrays those key themes. That's all yeah. I will say about the ending we will get. Um, because I think another thing Episode Thirteen is doing is is when you talk about like how this series interrogates masculinity. I think is very interesting with. He kills a man in front of his mother because that guy would have killed him, basically. And his mother is horrified and says, you weren't like this as a kid. You weren't like this as a kid. And he's like, I'm everything this world has told me to be. I am a soldier. I'm fighting for the Federation. Like, you're taking care of these refugees. I'm fighting the people who made them this way. And and that disconnect between the mother who can't understand the boy who grew up to kill and the boy who can't understand why the world that made him this way would react any other way. And there's yeah. things like that that, like, I I can't point to another piece of fiction that I've seen put its finger on that scale that effectively, I don't think, you know? Um, it's really dark, beautiful stuff. Yeah. So, Amro, fantastic protagonist. Let's go to the other side of the fence and let's talk about... Shar! My boy, Shar's novel, Char. Red Comet of Zeon. He's so good. This is one of my favorite stretches of Char in all of Gundam. Is this where he is just fucking with Garma? You and you don't know why he's doing. Like you're never quite sure like what his motivations are at this point because they have not been revealed to us. Um, but he's just like manipulating the situation to the extreme, and he's just the biggest fucking slimy asshole you know he's he's the worst but he's the best at the same time Char, Char. is such a petty bitch and I love him he is such a petty bitch he like because at first you think his motivation is just man I failed a lot trying to fight that Gundam so why don't I just reorient it and make everyone think Garma's the one failing right and that's kind of where you think it's going it's just he's saving face but then he's fucking with him in very specific ways where it's like, there's more to it than that. All the way up to episode 10, Garma's Fate, where he just full on, you know, evil villain rips off the mask over the, the communicator and is like, you had the misfortune of being born to the wrong family. I got nothing against you personally, dude. I really hate your dad. Enjoy death. That's basically it. And it's like, oh, motherfucking shit. And we don't know, through episode 13 at least, what the hell Char has against the Zabi family. I have no idea about that. But, like, the way they pace out that reveal where it's like, episodes 1 through 5, Char is the sexy, cool bad guy, you know, and he's really talented and, and, and formidable. And then it's like, oh, Char's a really petty bitch. And it's like, Char is really what the hell side is he on? And then it's like, oh shit, he just managed to bring down the heir to the royal family and create like an entire massive political incident in his own nation. And like the fallout of that, it's an amazing progression to see mostly going on in the background of these episodes. It's fucking phenomenal. Yeah, it's one of the things that like, 
like I think like even if you know that Char, like you hear because you know before I went and watched it the first time, I knew that Char was a big deal. I knew that he was in other stuff than just this show. There's a na- there's a show or there's a movie called Char's Counterattack. You know that he's around in different ways, so he's got to be really important. But like you, yeah, the first time you start watching it, you just have no context for how he's like. Oh yeah, he's a really cool villain. I like him a lot. He's got a great presence. But it's hard to understand like why would he be this big deal? And then you start getting that like oh. There's way more to this character than just he's like the really cool bad guy that's like the general on the that's the on the other side of the fence. You know, he's not he's not just like the Megatron or the Skeletor or the whatever, like the 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 capital V villain of the show that is just going to be there every single episode to thwart your heroes. He's got way more shit going on and that slow pullback of oh fuck yeah he's not just fucking with Garma for like to, to maybe try to rise up in the ranks to make himself look better he just straight up gets this fucking pretty boy killed because he hates the zombies that much and he's gonna give Cindy radio communication telling him like if you're going to resent anything resent your family and he's just like and I'm glad you're dead and ha 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 he's just like laugh and it's not even just like a normal evil laugh I love this about Ikeda's performances. He's not just like... He doesn't have a generic villain voice or anything like that. So when he laughs, it's just this like legitimate... Like, he's just really happy about this. He's really, really stoked about fucking pretty boy um, the Bochama uh, uh, Garma getting fucking killed. And he's just going to laugh in his face. There's actually something really amazing about Ikeda's performance on the whole, actually, is that... Because you had hyped this guy up to me, and and mm-hmm. I've I've heard Ikeda and th- you know he's he's in everything, right? Yes. So I've heard him somewhere along the line, but like I was not playing the Japanese version of Persona Five. I was playing the English dub. Um, but you were telling me like oh, this guy as is what's the character's name in Persona Five? Uh, Shido. Yeah, Shido. It's like he's he's this Ikeda dude, and he was Char in Mobile Suit, and it's so great. And I I listened to some clips, and I'm like, oh, that is a really good performance. But I I. I I, I guess I still didn't know what to expect when I got to actually watch Mobile Suit Gundam, but I probably expected a more generic villain voice because that's just in my head. You're like, he's a great villain. There's this kind of a vision of that in my head. And he doesn't, when we met Char, I'm like, oh, that's Char. That's not what I expected at all, but this is, a, this is good. And like, as you go through the episodes, you realize he's just, part of it is he's just fucking funny. Like, mm-hmm. it's a good comic performance on top of also being menacing and all these other things and mysterious and whatnot. Like, I actually think it's a very smart part of the entire Garma arc is that there's a lot of dark stuff going on with Amuro and and Captain Bright and the ship and, like, all the refugees who want to get off and all of that. So when we cut to Char, that's kind of when the show is letting the pressure off a little bit because the Char scenes are just fun. It is fun to watch Char fuck mercilessly with this completely hapless pretty boy who is only there because his dad is the at this point we don't even actually know that that his dad is the leader of Zeon they do a really good job of holding that reveal for us to make it clear just how deeply uh Char has fucked with his entire country <laughs> like uh-huh. it's amazing but like you go to those scenes and like you know he's unplugging the little communicator and putting dirt in it so it'll get fucked up and he won't be able to communicate with Garma and it's like it's it's a pretty brilliant way to kind of let the pressure off while also building up who I assume is going to be our ultimate antagonist in this show um, in a way that makes him seem even more formidable because you see just how smart and cunning he is. But that also allows those... Those are the fun moments in these early episodes. 
Absolutely. And just every scene with Shar and Garma is so just delectable. I love... I, it's it's early on. It's when when he gets back to Shar gets back to Earth for the first time. And I think it's actually the first scene they have together where Shar's like in the shower and Garma comes into the room. It's like all of that is so good. It's just so it, it you just don't see it anywhere else really in Gundam. Just like this like that kind of weird sort of political manipulation and like I'm just going to get in really close with this guy and I like Shar is just so charming that of course Garma's going to think that they're they're old buddies and and like if you actually uh one of the best one of my favorite Gundam things is the Gundam the Origin prequel movies one of those movies is entirely Shar and Garma in the military academy together yes and it's so good it's so good um and like their whole relationship of Garma being this hapless idiot who just kind of buys into Shar's charm and thinks that Shar is just like you know, going to respect the chain of command and all these kinds of things. And Char using every single one of those things and every moment to the utmost effectiveness to just slowly push this pretty boy to his to his eventual demise. It's so, so fun. It's so fun because every time he does something to fuck over Garma, it actually makes Garma trust him more. Like, that's the way mm-hmm. he does it is he always makes it out like, I'm helping you, I'm doing something to, like, further your cause. It's like... And Garma's like, that's that's huge of you. You don't want credit for it? It's like, no, you take the credit, Garma. I'm okay. I don't need any more credit. And then he gets in his his you know his mobile suit and he's like, all right, let's fuck this guy up. And it's uh it's delicious. It's amazing. And yeah. and I think on the flip side, we just need to talk about Garma for a second too, who is a short-lived character, um, but an amazing like part of the mythos here. I think of kind of our first view of the Zabi royal family, who we don't even really know is a royal family yet in the strictly in the canon of just these episodes going forward linearly. Um, but is such a great foil to Shar. I love the character design on Garma because mm-hmm. they also design him in such a way where he. F- like, the voice and the character design looks like he is destined to be a longer-term player than he actually is. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the great bait-and-switch of that character. Yeah, and I just love, he. you know, he's always playing with his hair, and yep. he, he, you know, he clearly thinks very highly of himself, but he hasn't ever actually earned anything that he's got because he... You know, as as you know, Shard just repeatedly calls him like that spoiled rich kid is sort of what our our uh, uh, subtitles translated as. In that that quality to Garma does, yeah. And, and then when eventually you have the plot of okay, yeah, Garma Zabi, he's part of the ruling family of Zeon, which is the, the Zabi family. This is kind of what they are: are these like very extremely rich, kind of baroque aristocrats um and in garma is and garma's like the nice cute young one who who seems like he's the he's very clearly well-meaning like like garma's never like cruel he's never malicious he's not sadistic he's not evil in the way that char when he's char's fucking with him char feels evil garma just feels like he was kind of born on the wrong side of this war and if he had been been born and he wasn't a zombie he might have been a totally nice dude yeah, um, Garma's not going to go out and commit a war crime, it doesn't feel like, right? Exactly, Like, yes. I feel like he, if he captured the white base, that would be much better for the white base than if they were captured by Shar. you know? Yes. Yeah, and, but, you know, Garma's a spoiled rich kid, and he's a zombie, so he's got to go, and you're going to laugh as he, he goes down in flames. Um, and then let's just, about, like... Sorry, just the Garma's Fate episode. Oh, okay, yeah, if you want to dig into that one? Just for a second, I mean... It's interesting because the first half of that episode is pretty stock Gundam up to this point, at least. 
mm-hmm. and that they're going to have another fight, and we're kind of angling for that and everything. And then it is because isn't that the one where they hide in the baseball stadium and everything? Yes, yes. yes. So that's the episode where they're in some like destroyed old city. Yeah, and yeah, and the white base goes and backs up into this old uh, bombed out baseball like dome stadium. So the, the white base is mostly covered, and they're trying to hide from from Garma's uh, fleet as they're trying to escape. Yes. And Char figures it out immediately. And that's that's a theme through all of this is that like Bright is a really good military commander. He's coming up consistently with good ideas, but Char is better. And he sees yes. them every step of the way. And Bright doesn't know it, but kind of the only reason they're surviving is because Char doesn't care about them yet. He's more concerned with beating Garma. And yeah. uh and basically Char just sets it all up so that he, he tricks Garma to come out on the wrong side exactly where he knows. Like, he basically manipulates the situation so Bright's plan will work better than Bright could have ever imagined. And the white base just rains hell upon him. And the final moments of that episode with Garma, like, deciding to do a kamikaze run, basically, and shouting, you know, for the glory of the Principality of Zeon as he goes to his fiery death. And, and just after Shar has, has given him the speech over the mic we were talking about earlier... I rewound that scene like two times. I had mm-hmm. to watch it several times in a row. It is so electric and amazing. I even yeah. texted you. It was like midnight. I'm like, holy fucking shit, Sean. This episode. Yeah, I believe that I like you texted me that like shortly after I went to sleep. And so I woke up in the morning and saw like, oh, yep. Jonathan's full in on the Gundam train. This is great. Yeah, Garma's Fate is one of my favorite, most favorite episodes of Gundam. Like, just, like, aesthetically, it looks so good because yeah. it's so distinct from most episodes of Gundam being in this, like, it's at night, they're in this bombed-out city. I love all the stuff on the uh, bridge of the white base. Is it at, It's, like, nighttime lighting, so it's got, like, this soft blue look to it, and, they, yeah, them backing in. I mean, just all, like, the, the look of the white base backing up into that bombed-out uh, dome is so cool and it gives you the sense of like the toll that this war has had on the earth um because then you also just get some really good urban warfare with amuro in the gundam and he like he's like shooting zakus through buildings and stuff like that as he's fighting char and char's men and but yes the the finale of that episode of garma doing the kamikaze attack i mean just Bright being able to just shout out like fire all the cannons and blowing just the 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 big gout to, to bits that uh that that Garma is in and then Garma going in for kamikaze attack. I love Bright shining like emergency takeoff and like the white base is trying to go up as fast as it can as the god explodes in the air and then the remnants crash into the ground and it's this gigantic explosion. Um, all of that, because also that whole end scene of the kamikaze attack and all of that is happening as the sun is beginning to rise over the horizon. So the bl- soft blue color palette starts to become like sort of pink and purple. This is all that's so good. It's yes, got and, and I mentioned such this a earlier. Sense of aesthetic. Yes, and because I mentioned this earlier that this looks like an episode they blew a bunch of money on, and like they tagged it like we're going to put everything into this particular basket uh, early on because the episodes on either side of it are well done, but not as impressive. And, yeah, it's uh, for good reason, because it's it's just it's another one of those episodes that just pretty clearly signals that you are not watching what you think maybe you were watching when you first saw the theme song or something, and they're all happily running in a line, Moe Agare, Moe... Yeah. It's, it's, nope, this is a different kind of show. Yeah, because, yeah, because Garma seems like he's, like, this really important character, and he's yeah. only around for five episodes. He's dead after five episodes. Um... 
So what character did you want to talk about next? Um, Yeah, so because let's just kind of roll through the white base crew because I particularly want to hear your impressions of them because because as you said earlier, we don't have like as much access to them. Like they're definitely we're a bit of a at a distance from them, but we've had some time to meet all of our our white base friends. So I like all of them. I do. I think. There's a question about how Frau Bo is used, and I'm curious if that character deepens at all, because she's basically there to make tea for Amuro and comfort him when he comes back. And I think it's an interesting role, and I think it has some interesting elements of, like, what emotional labor she is doing on the ship. Because it's it's not like that's the only role for a woman on this show. There are all sorts of uh, women on the ship doing very active things, including the the pilot. Is is that no? Sela is the one at comms. Yeah, she's on communications. Amirai is the the yes. helmswoman. Yeah. And I love Mirai and Sela. They're awesome. Um, but and Frau Bo, I think has an. I'm curious to see where she goes. Um, but I love Ryu, who's the other guy who like gets in the Gundams sometimes. Um, and he's just you know he's a cool fat dude. I like him. Um, yes. but Kai has quickly mm-hmm. become one of my favorite characters. Where he was that sarcastic little asshole they met on the on on side seven when they were escaping and you know he becomes like one of the other lead gundam pilots and he is not the most reliable person but he's quickly becoming like a kind of invaluable member of the crew and he's just got this attitude and uh i like him i I like keeping an eye on him because you never quite know what you're going to get from him Yes, and I like particularly early on he, the like he's one of those characters that will just kind of needle Bright and Amro and just kind of put in these little like kind of jabs at them, um, and then that eventually gets one of my favorite scenes. I forget which episode it is, but at the end of one of the episodes, Kai just sort of offhandedly throws some sort of comment at Amro, and Amro just explodes at him and is just like, "Who the hell do you think you are? Uh, like you're some adult? Like because Kai is probably I mean he's not an adult adult, but he's probably like nineteen or twenty or something. And most of the people on the ship are like fifteen or sixteen years old at this point. Um, it's just like, what the hell are you doing? And just like Amro getting to vent at him is a really good good little moment. It is. Um... But yeah, I like the whole... I think it's a really good cast of characters. Again, it's not like they all get like their own standout episodes, at least so far. But I don't think they need to. I, I think what it does is it, it fleshes out this crew where everyone feels like they have a distinct personality, set of talents, role in the show. And when the white base is doing good work, you understand why. Because these are people who are amateurs, but they're competent and hardworking. And, and I like watching them all work together and become a crew. Um, yeah. which they were not in episode one. They didn't even all know each other necessarily. So, yeah, I like all that. Yeah, they're they're all very good. I like them a lot. Um, there's there's a couple you missed. So you missed the orphans. Uh, I love Kika, the orphans. The three yeah, little Kika, kids. Cats and Let's. They are. They're some of my favorite. Like they're the only comic like like really comic relief like kai kind of can have a comic relief role sometimes but they're the comic relief on the show and it's like the most gundam thing in the world is having the comic relief characters secretly be the most tragic characters on the show because they're all like four-year-old kids that are stuck on this like military base in the middle of this war and their parents are dead um and they're like you know they're responsible for doing like dishes and, and like swabbing the deck and all that kind of like they're doing sort of like basic menial roles on the ship although you don't ever get the sense that like people are forcing them to do that they've they've elected to do that themselves but that element of they are very funny i love kika who's the girl um who's kind of she's like the main one who has most of the yeah. lines um but then like secretly like you every once in a while they'll have a scene and they'll be like a oh god this is horrifying that, that these little kids are on this this death warship what is the, this is sad 
Yes, I love them. They're, my favorite scene with them so far might actually be one that is not particularly funny. Um, it's in episode 12 or 13 where they come onto the bridge and they're going to like swab the decks, basically. And, and they're playing and it's a tense moment and Bright just shouts at them like, this is not the moment, get out of here. And they all start to cry. And it's also a phenomenal little character moment for Bright, who I think realizes... Because uh, uh, that's one of the arcs I feel like Bright has over this course of episodes is realizing he... He is, he is, this is a military scenario, but he does not have actual soldiers on this ship. And he yeah. has to figure out how to modulate his leadership to work with the people he has, not the people he wants. And that's mm-hmm. one of those moments where, because it's with the little comic relief kids, um, but it works really well. And that to me is like, if those three little kids were just there for laughs, they would probably be annoying. But that they are there for laughs and they also serve a thematic function and they, they reflect interesting things in the other characters. That's what makes them valuable and allows them to be funny. It allows you to have those laughs kind of guilt-free in a way. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah. They're, they're, I just say I love every scene the, the, the war orphans have in the show. Because, as you said, they serve both the comic relief function, they serve a, a thematic function, and then they do... Um, allow like show different sides, particularly of Amaro and Bright, because they also have a couple of good interactions with Amaro in yes. these episodes. Like, there's that one where, uh, like, it's just a little brief moment where where Kika, Cats, and Let's are all in like the kitchen area, and they steal like a tomato, and then they're running through the hallways like having fun and laughing, and, and then Kika runs up to Amaro with like the tomato behind her back and says, "I have a present for you," and holds it out, and it's like there's a nice little warm moments the show gets to have um, that I think those characters help facilitate. And again, it's something that's always super impressive to me that the show has so much going on in every single episode and they still have little time to do little tiny character scenes like that um, that are not like strictly necessary for the plot but do so much to flesh out what we're watching. Um, yeah, absolutely. Those characters are great. But, so those are the orphans, but they're not the iron-blooded orphans, right? No, the Iron-Blooded Orphans are the Iron... They're the orphans that run the PMC on Mars in the show Iron-Blooded Orphans. That okay. They are also very tragic. Um, yes, well, they're orphans. It's, it's hard not to be a tragic orphan at some point. It's true. Yeah, it's a pretty sort of tra- like ready-made tragedy right there for yeah. you. There's a reason why like that word is just like synonymous with sadness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, uh, and are there any other members of the crew other than Bright we haven't talked about? Um, and then there's also Hayato, um, who he's, he's the, probably like the most sort of whatever, like he doesn't have a lot of, and that's, this is true throughout like basically this whole show, um, is that they don't do that much with Hayato. He's like the short kid with like the really disproportionately big head. Um, actually I think my favorite Hayato moment in all of Mobile Suit Gundam is probably, we, we have seen it. It's very brief. There's like a three-second clip at the beginning of episode 13 where Hayato and Ryu are like on the beach in Geese and um, Hayato, like there's a small character details that Hayato uh, trained in judo and he says that thing in episode two and he like gets this good judo throw on Ryu. Again, it's like three seconds at the beginning of that episode. I'm like, that's a cool moment. I just like seeing these characters interact that way. I noted that. And, and you know, I that, that beginning scene in episode 13 I actually liked and I could have used more of even of them kind of on the beach because I liked those characters characters and i liked seeing them literally and figuratively with their hair down you know um yes and off the bridge it was an off duty um but no i like the crew but i really want to talk about captain bright because he's so cool yes so then go ahead let's talk about captain bright it's so good he's he's a great character he is 
a character who I think reveals a lot of, if not, I don't know if depth is the right word, but a lot of shading um, through just kind of being who he is and being there on the on the bridge doing the job every day. And I like that. And I like that, again, you get this sense that, like, this guy was totally a born leader. He was always kind of meant to do something like this. But he is really young for it. And he does not have, like, the requisite crew he would necessarily need. Um, but he is doing the best with what he has. And I like him for that. I also like the moments when I think you get a sense that he's still figuring it out. Like, he is not perfect in his dealings with Amuro. And I think just, like... In the ways, in the episodes where Amuro is more reluctant, just pushing him, like, no, you have to do this, shut up, get on the bridge. Like, that's the wrong way to deal with it. And mm-hmm. I think he knows that, but I don't think he knows what the hell the right way is, because I don't know who would know. Um, and it's a, a, but I like the character. And, and Hirotaka Suzuoki, who died young, he died like when he was 50, um, which sucks. He, they've had to replace Tension Han on DBZ, and it's never been the same, because yeah. I really liked Suzuoki. Um, but I think it's a great vocal performance, too. And uh, I already am just at the point where, like, it's like the captain of a, of a Star Trek show or something. I just like seeing that dude on the bridge. You feel Absolutely. like you're in good hands. Yeah, Captain Bright is great. Like, he's, you know, because, like, one of the sort of standards that Mobile Suit Gundam sets for the franchise is this structure of you have your ace pilot, who is, like, your number one protagonist, but then you have your number two protagonist is the captain of whatever the ship is, and Captain Bright kind of sets up that role, like, archetype that... Like, not just Gundam, but, like, lots of other mech shows use that as well. Um, and, yeah, he's... He's so interesting because he, he has both that, like... You get that sense that he is really good at what he does. Like, he's shockingly good at what he does, given that he's relatively inexperienced. Um, he obviously is way more experienced than anybody else on the ship, because uh, everybody else is, like, basically civilian, but... He still is not, he's not really truly a commanding officer, but he's slowly kind of getting used to that role and kind of learning how to be a commander, but not knowing how to deal with all the pressures of it. And it is that whenever you get to see those little cracks in, in Bright's armor uh, are so meaningful to me. Like, I think it's episode 12. You have a very quick, I think it's, it's right after that scene where he yells at the kids and then he goes back to his quarters and then a little bit, and he like sits down on a chair, unbuttons his shirt, and kind of leans back for a second. And then Mirai runs in because some like news of I think of what of the the Rambaral's forces are coming in, and so she runs in to to let him know. And he immediately sits up, back up, and buttons his shirt up again. And it's like little character details like that he has that he, you know, has to hide so much behind the military regulation and the uniform and all of that because he's so young. Like one that like really there's something very authentic that that speaks to me so well of the like having to hide behind these superfluous things to to like kind of bolster yourself up but it's also at this point as a character he does not know how to be soft and still be able to be in command even though that's the thing he needs to be able to do to command people that are not people that are soldiers that are not just going to follow orders because you tell them to because that's not the life that these people have led yeah it's not the life they chose either um but yeah, it's it's you really you just feel for the dude because it's the world's shittiest assignment, right? Mm-hmm. Like he did not sign up for this. He did not pick this this mission. It is an absolute, you know, crapshoot where he can do his absolute best and they're still alive mostly because Shar was fucking with Garma, you know? Like mm-hmm. like there's things like that. Um and thank God that ship has Captain Bright because anyone less good at this they would be dead in the water but like 
it is it is one of the interesting nuances of the show and and I, I I feel like that character is coming into his own more in terms of like us understanding him as a person with each passing episode and I'm very excited to like f- revisit this next time we do this and feel like who do I what more do I know about bright now because I feel yeah. like I've gleaned if I went from like I didn't even honestly Sean last time we did this weekly suit Gundam after episodes one and two and you kept saying Captain Bright I wasn't a hundred percent sure who you were talking about out of like the mess of characters we had met there were so many of them I, I think I know I'm like okay he's the young military guy who's kind of like de facto in charge but I wouldn't have been able to like draw you a picture of him or something like yeah. I totally can picture him in my head now and I think that that just speaks to how clearly they've they've moved everything forward yeah and I think it's like so much to the show's credit that I feel like in a lesser show, Captain Bright would be a really bad character. Like a character you'd hate because he's always pushing and and like just pushing, pushing, pushing Amro to the point where you have in Fly Gundam episode nine, he, he straight up slaps Amro in what is like a very sort of like iconic scene where, where Amro collapses and says, you hit me. I've never even been hit by my father. Um, this is like a, a sort of famous line from the show. Um, and like that character archetype, if you didn't see all those other elements of him, you'd just be like so frustrated and always like, why does the guy in charge always have to just be a fucking asshole? Because they're always an asshole in these kinds of shows. Um, and here they like give you enough, like like a peek behind the curtain enough with Bright to see like, oh, this is why in those scenes he's an asshole. You like, I don't agree with what he's doing, but I always understand why he's pushing Amro and the way he's pushing him because Bright doesn't have the capacity to do anything better at this point. Yeah, and I don't even think he's an asshole. Like, even in that moment, like, I don't agree with him hitting Amuro, but, like, I don't know what the hell I'd do because they <laughs> yeah. need that fucking Gundam out there or they're all dead. So, like, it's it's a series of impossible choices that he yes. is uh, navigating as a competent but still fallible human. So, yeah. Any other major characters to hit? I think that's all for the made for the characters, but there's like a for this stretch of episodes there is like they're not a character, but there's like a group of characters of the refugees oh, yeah. that are a pretty significant subplot here. Um in particular I wanted because that's a good additional pressure of I like that the white base is constantly dealing with in this stretch of episodes, Garma and Shar taking like attacking them from the outside, but also the unrest among the refugees on the inside of the ship that are like they're constantly trying to get out. And then that's where you get Winds of War, episode eight, which is both for you and me, um, one of our favorite episodes. And in particular with that episode, the whole subplot of the young mother with her her son who just want to get off on Earth. And they have like this town that her her husband grew up in, her husband who's presumably died on side seven. Um, and she wants to raise her son there. And so she kind of helps lead that that. F- one of the excursions of the refugees to be like, okay, let's actually like unload a bunch of these people. They want to get off here. And then they craft the whole sort of military uh, sort of like decoy and like diversion strategy that we already talked about earlier. But, but that whole sequence of the mother kind of walking away and you have the other um, Xeon pilots that are sort of monitoring the situation. And that guy's the, the one guy who's like the main pilot has this line about like, you know, let's go back and help them out. And the other guy's like, no, why? Like, Garma is going to get mad at us. And he says, well, Gar- a, a young man like Garma would never understand the feelings of a family man like us. And I, like, like, those characters, those two characters and their relationship with the mother is what makes me love that episode. There's yes. other really good stuff in the episode, 
like the the whole trick with the Gundam, but like it is that it is those two characters. It is giving more humanity than we have seen so far to the Zeon forces. Having that relationship with them, showing that you've got all these refugees who are they're not taking sides. They don't give a shit. They're just trying to survive. And then the kicker of that episode is is Amaro shoots them down, and they live. Which you could almost argue is like slightly a cop-out for how dark this show gets. But I'm glad they lived because I don't know if I could have kept watching if Amaro murdered those two people. But yes. like it is and, – and that by the end of that episode, for that young mother, Amaro's not the hero of that episode at all. And mm-hmm. and I think there's things like – yeah, just the way it complicates all of that. Oh my god, it's so good. Yeah. And then that episode also has like the classic Gundam ending where Mobile Suit Gundam just – some of these episodes have just like the best like last like 10 or 15 seconds they're so strong and that one ends with those pilots finding the mother again and and them saying like just offhand like oh yeah this used to be like St. Elmo's or whatever like whatever the the town name was like oh yeah this this area used to be this this town St. whatever and and they kind of like it was like well good luck and walk away and then the mother collapses to the ground realizing like oh this place she was going to trying to get to is literally just a giant crater because that's how devastating this war has been. Um, and that's all throughout that episode because also earlier in that episode, there's like a, a brief moment when they're flying over a lake and they're looking at a map and like, the fuck is this lake? And someone looks over and is like, I don't think that's a lake. I think that's just like a bomb crater. It's like, oh, okay. And it's like, oh, that's like the lake that we're looking for is the one over there. And it's those little moments where you realize just like the real toll that this war has had on the people and on the actual like earth itself in the the geography of the earth has actually changed because technology has gotten to the point where that's how devastating warfare can be is really striking yeah absolutely um great episode great great episode um i also want to talk briefly about the ending of episode 11 Icelina loves remains um, because that's God, all that of where Icelina stands up on the top of the ship, pointing a gun at Amro as Amro is like out trying to fix the Gundam, and then she she trips and or yeah she she like faints and falls because she's been injured in the crash, at, like right after she says like like I'm going to get revenge and I was like revenge on me who what are you talking about it I was not sure how to read that scene in a, in a good way it's a great scene but like she cause she's pointing the gun at Amro she's going to shoot him. He is defenseless, and then the gun she points it in the air and falls. And I, I read that as either like she passed out or she just committed suicide, like and didn't want to kill him. I wasn't sure what we were supposed to read out of that. Yeah, my my reading of that has always been that she's because you know she was like the the gal had just tr- like crashed, and that one other Zeon sort of guy officer that was one of Garma's men dies in that crash so to to me the implication is like she's really badly injured yeah she climbs up there and then like finally kind of succumbs um faints and falls off and dies and she probably would have shot amro if if she had had you know more strength left in her to to survive that crash right but it's a beautiful scene again that episode has more simplistic and sometimes off-modeled character work but the backgrounds in that one those like purple skies and everything it's it's such a dynamic scene also just because of the staging that she's on this destroyed ship amuro is we don't see amuro outside the gundam much like that where like we Mm -hmm. see the gundam in scale um and he looks so small next to it and he's so defenseless 
amazing moment and then it ends with them burying her body and not even knowing who she was like yeah good god that's such a because i remember when i watched garma's fate they have the the next episode preview and i'm like oh an episode where iselina goes that sounds kind of redundant right you know what i mean like that sounds yeah. like that could be kind of a filler episode and it's not it's a really valuable uh half hour of gundam uh as i should just be trained for by now and poor amaro <laughs> Yeah, like that image. That's like that's one of those of like those end, like final images where it like kind of zooms all the way out, and then like it's the style of the image kind of changes to this more painterly look, which they do sometimes. And that one where they're all standing over her grave right after Amar just says, "I wonder who she was," um, like that. That's a moment that like has has always stuck with me really hard in Mobile Suit Gundam. Um, yeah, that's it's absolutely a good show. Um, and then we've got the last two episodes, 12 and 13. Um, 12 is kind of a down one. It's, it's mostly, it's, it's about the Zabi family, who we have not seen a lot of yet. Um, and then it is also an introduction to Ramba Ray, who... Ramba Rao. Ramba Rao, sorry. Who I assume, it's Amuro Ray, Ramba Rao. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I assume, as you've said, will be an upcoming villain. It's kind of like a preview of him. Um, yes, yeah. He's going to be a big character in the next chunk of episodes we get. Yeah. I do love all the stuff with the zombie family here because there's a different version of this show that could have just started episode one with a giant info dump about here's the zombie family, here's who they are, here's what they want to do, all of that. But they don't, and we don't even learn there is this big royal family really until Garma is dead. Shar has revealed that he wants revenge for some reason against the zombie family, and then it's like... Cause, and part of that is just to hold the reveal of what a major thing Shar has done. But also I feel like it's a good way of like keeping us in the middle of this conflict that is so immediate and, and not pulling out until a good 10 episodes in is a really interesting strategy. And I think it works really well. And I like in 11 and 12, you see like 12 has the whole funeral for Garma. And there's the big speech that I think Jiren or Giren, yeah. whatever his Giren. name is, make, Giren yeah. makes. Um and they're all listening to that. It's uh, there's some really cool stuff there. Yeah, it's really good. Like I love um, because the first time it zooms out to like, oh, this is the Zabi family is at the end of Garma's fate. Where I think the last moment of that episode is it cuts to Degwin Zabi, who is like the patriarch of the family, but is old and like isn't really in power. Giran is the one who's actually in power, but so so Degwin, who is who's Garma's father. He's sitting on his throne with his big cane, and then there's a messenger there, and he stands up and drops his cane, and the narrator has some great line, and it's like, it's said that when Degwin Zabi heard the news, he dropped his, like, his cane fell that day, or whatever it is. Um, it's like the weird poetic line. And then, yes, yeah, so then you get to see the a better sense of what the Zabi family is, which is their, like, sort of space Nazis, because you get the whole uh, Sig Zeon scene, um, that's also a scene, the Sig Zeon thing, which is a pretty iconic scene from Gundam. Um, that's an, another place where I think Bright gets a really good moment where everybody else is just standing there speechless, listening to this thing and kind of terrified of like seeing the scope of who their enemy is, which is the line that Amro has is like, this is our enemy. Um, but then also that kind of military dictatorship, like they're all unified and angry and Giran is this like Hitler-esque figure who's giving this big sort of fascistic speech and Bright is the only one who stands up and says, now shut the fuck up 
Like you hypocrite. Like you are not fighting for freedom. You're fighting for a zombie family led dictatorship. Like we know what the zombie family is like. We know what your policies are. Like you're not fighting for the liberation of anybody. You're just fighting for yourself. Um, and I like that he's the only person there who seems to have enough knowledge of like the political landscape. Um, and also is like, he has to kind of like be stand there and kind of be a figurehead for the other people under his command. And she was like, no, like we're fighting for this. Like they are the enemy. Like they are wrong. Absolutely. It's, and he also has the moment where they're all trying to turn away and he says, no, watch this. Yes. Like, look at this, look at what we're up against. Cause there's also just the sense in that of like, you know, the, the reveal of the Zabi family on one hand shows us what a monumental thing Shar has done. It also shows us what monumental shit the white base is in because mm-hmm. like, they killed the Prince of Zeon. Like they're fucked. They're 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 up against some shit here. And in episode twelve, they've already got a new crew coming after them. So like, it's a uh, it's a big deal, and it, it makes me excited for what comes next. But then, episode thirteen, I think mm-hmm. of every episode we've watched so far, Sean had the biggest effect on me because yep, it's, it's my personal favorite episode of Gundam. Okay, so, damn. Thirteen's really fucking good. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's it's. Amuro goes home. He tries to find his mother. His mother is at this refugee camp. They meet. It's a warm moment until uh, two Xeon officers come in looking for him. He shoots them from under the bedsheets and then has this huge break with his mother and then goes out in the Gundam and kind of indiscriminately destroys an entire enemy base for no good reason. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, I I like it was like midnight and I I didn't because it's dark outside and at, in the at night in Iowa we have a million bugs out there but I kind of felt like I needed to go take a walk around the neighborhood of like oh my god or like go take a shower or something and just be like I'm unclean that was so dark but yeah. but brilliant yeah the first time I watched that coming home that was that was the episode where I was like uh well shit like I'm not just going to watch this show I'm going to watch all of this like franchise because it hit me so hard like it's so meticulously well constructed because it shows so much like there's so much going on in that episode because that episode also has the whole scene where Amro goes back to his childhood home that he hasn't seen since he was like four years old or something and I love the little glimpses you get of little boy Amro he's so cute um, but he has his childhood home which has basically been uh, confiscated by these drunk soldiers Earth Federation soldiers who have been left behind by command um, because, you know, like everything is just in tatters at this point with the war. And so they have just sort of taken over and they're abusing the people in this village. Like those one soldier steal the apple from the mother of one of Amr's childhood friends. And, and there's this sense of like this show is not a show that's just like there are good guys and bad guys. And this is where you get a very clear sense of that of war has a lot of consequences on a big scale but also on small scales like the one we get to see here in coming home which is the kind of thing that is usually glossed over in this kind of stuff because you usually just see the big battles and move on because that's what the show is about and visiting this small village that there's no big fight going on here there's nothing of importance going on here like this is they're in so such an out of the way backwater area of earth that is of no military importance that the white base gets to just kind of have a leave day basically, which we've never seen before. Um, but like the war still affects that as much as anywhere else. And it's, it's like you, you cannot escape the consequences of what's going on here. 
Um, and that element of like introducing us to it that way then I think sets up everything in this episode to feel that much more complicated and, and like you as a viewer like this is not an episode that I think you just have like an easy takeaway of how to feel about it because it's deep, like struggling and juggling all these different kinds of emotions and ideas all packed into this really tight 20 minutes. Absolutely. Uh, I think every beat of it is amazing. I, you know, there's, like you said, the scene with the apple where she, they drop the coin and Amuro fights him. He gets in a fist fight with these guys who are ostensibly on his own side over it. Um, that's amazing. The, the whole construction of the sequence where he kills the guy in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and that part of what is so disturbing is you get the sense that he wasn't even aware he pulled the trigger. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he, he's shocked that he did it. It's the first time we have seen Amuro, not the Gundam, kill someone. Which yeah. I, I know the Gundam is him, but there is also a... There's an inherent... Amuro is shocked by it. That there's a difference there to it, you know? It's it's not being in a big suit and shooting someone else in a big suit. He shot a dude. And he injured another guy. And he has to live with that. His mother is horrified. Essentially disowns him. The way they talk. And, and Amuro being unable to understand what has happened. And basically falling back more hard than ever on his mission in the Gundam and as a member of the White Base crew, it's so heavy and it is so raw and it is so real about what war can do to a person, especially a kid. You could almost end the series here because I'm not... It's it's like it's such a grand thematic statement. I'm almost worried to watch more of it because that is such a dark... And to do it in episode 13 of a 43-episode show, like, it makes a pretty clear flag-planting statement about where we're going. Um, Because, you know, you have an episode called Coming Home after 12 episodes of Hell getting back to Earth. You think that's going to be the nice, happy episode where everyone gets to go see their family. And it is so resolutely not what that is. Because that's what I was expecting. I knew the one we were finishing on, Sean, was called Coming Home... I thought I was kind of praying, like, I want these characters to have a happy moment. That's what I want to see. And it's not. Again, this isn't me criticizing the show. This is me praising it. But it's also, like, it makes me actively almost anxious about watching more. <laughs> yeah, because the show's not, it's not about just, like, you know, giving simple happy resolutions to these kinds of stories because... Again, like like Gundam is about the consequences of war, um, and and this is the episode that to me like symbolizes that more than anything. Right? It has everything. It has the consequences of war um, on on masculinity, on adolescence, and on technology, and like the intersection of all those things. And that to me is like the primary concern of Gundam as a franchise. Generally speaking, is tackling the question of all those things put together in different ways right like that's why you have a show that's called iron-blooded orphans because like every show has to be about the way that all those things interact and one of the ways that war and adolescence interact is that war creates orphans who grow up without parents and have to deal with those consequences um and amuro himself is like in like kind of orphaned twice by this war and that the war tears him away from his mother because that's why Tam Ray has to go leave is because rising tensions with the Zeons. He's an engineer. He's working for the Earth Federation. He's going to design this weapon. Um, and then also then when he comes home after all of that, the war orphans him again because at this point, 
he's been pushed so far as a soldier, he cannot reestablish that relationship with his mom because his mom is someone who... I think his mom is someone who either can't see or doesn't care about the war as a big-scale problem. She only cares about it as this small-scale thing right in front of her. So that's why she's working at, like, a refugee camp and, and helping people that way. But when she sees that Amaro is actively contributing and fighting in the war, even if he's fighting for the right side, she can't accept that personally. And so that, like, those, those differences means that Amaro has to be estranged again and has to lose his familiar relationships again and but the darkest thing about it all is that he actively makes that choice and that's the thing at the end of this episode as i said like gundam episodes a great gundam episode always comes together in those last final final moments where amuro is on the beach with his mom at sunset like gundam just has such a great use of color in these kinds of moments um captain bright comes walking up from the white base like all soldierly and professional they animate bright so well in this scene of like he's taking like you know like standing up straight and like very very prim and proper you know he does the whole like sort of like full like 100 degree 80 degree kind of spin turn thing that soldiers do um and you know and and bright while bright was just criticizing amuro about like purposely just purposelessly destroying this whole zeon base he's still praising amuro in front of his mom like rightfully so because amuro has saved all their lives but amuro just makes this choice very coldly to say no i'm not going to go back with you mom i'm going to stay on this white base like i'm going to continue to fight and and bright explicitly gives him the choice to stay and amuro chooses not to and that that moment to me is so powerful and so and again like i have such mixed feelings about it because on the one hand i'm like yes amros like stay you should stay here re like build a new life don't go out and 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 fight like don't do all this stuff and at the same time you know that he needs to you know that like even if the earth federation is not perfect they are better than what we have seen from the zeon stuff especially after episode 12 and you know that all these people that we care about on the white base will probably die if Amro is not there and so those conflicting emotions which to me reflect like my real world conflicting emotions about the military and about war in our world as well and like this episode in 20 minutes captures all of that and then they pack it you know they they pack that final fucking gut punch in there right at the very end with that scene absolutely um Anything else to say about this batch of episodes? It's really good, man. Gundam's it's, so good, Jonathan. It's so good. I wanted to share something. Um, last week, I, I kind of teased. I there's this. Uh, there's a lot of writing I've studied by um, Hayao Miyazaki, the famous artist, obviously. Um, not involved in Gundam, but active yeah. during the time of Gundam. And I just said he's got a couple great quotes on Mecha. And I thought as a way to kind of that was a very dark discussion we just had about coming yes. home so maybe as a way to um palette cleanse i just wanted to read a little bit of this because this is interesting to me because he's writing this first quote i'm going to read is from 1979 so gundam okay. would either be airing or it would not have aired yet either way miyazaki probably had not seen it i mean it's... yeah i mean that that would have been before gundam had gained its popularity which yes. have been like the early 80s right so okay um, this is this is again from 1979. He says, In Japan today, animated TV shows filled with all kinds of fancy robot-like mechanical creations are all the rage. I have certainly drawn lots of mecha or mechanical things myself. 
But the general theme of currently popular shows seems to be that the protagonist jumps in a giant machine he couldn't possibly have created on his own, battles the enemy in it, and then boasts about winning. I frankly hate these kind of shows. I don't care what types of robots are featured. For me, in a truly successful mecha show, the protagonist should struggle to build his own machine, he should fix it when it breaks down, and he should have to operate it himself. One, that is just a phenomenal, grumpy Miyazaki quote. Mm -hmm. I love it when Miyazaki is just grumpy, which he has been since the 70s. Basically since he started being in public life. Yeah. And uh, it's also actually kind of a great tee-up for Gundam, honestly, because he's talking about super robot shows, right? Yes, yeah. And, and I feel like Gundam actually is addressing a lot of the things he's talking about in really sly, interesting ways. Like, you know, um, Amuro did not build the Gundam, but his skill is that he knows how to operate it and fix it and all these things. Like, I think Miyazaki would very much approve of the moment where the Gundam breaks down in episode 11 and, and he has to get out with a fucking screwdriver and try to fix it. Exactly, yeah. Like, because that's always some of the best moments in Gundam as, like, a franchise or win the the mobile suits or the the mecha feel like real mechanical things and not like big magic fantasy suits of armor that they basically wear but it's like no like this part of it broke down i have to get out with a fucking wrench and like tighten this bull or like whatever it is to get this thing to work again yes that's that seems to be what miyazaki wanted and gundam gives it to you Yes. Uh, and then this next one I want to read, this is a slightly longer quote, but I think it's really interesting in terms of what he describes here, I think, is the core push and pull uh, dilemma at the heart of Mecha that I think Mobile Suit Gundam is consumed with. Mm-hmm. And I think it's another way I would be like, I've never heard Miyazaki talk about Gundam. I feel like if he saw this series, at least he'd like it. This is from July 1980, so Gundam would have aired by now. Again, he might not. It wasn't popular yet. Um, but this is, he says, In animation these days, vehicles are often referred to as mecha, and it has become increasingly common for mecha designers to focus obsessively on their external imper- appearance and functionality. I believe this fascination with mecha is often stimulated by an unconscious orientation toward all things powerful and strong. Not only that, I think those who create these images of vehicles are consciously trying to stimulate the same fascination among those who consume them. Now, I have to admit that ever since I was a child, I, too, have been a fan of military planes, warships, and tanks. In fact, I grew up being very excited about war films and drawing military things all over the place. I was an overly self-conscious boy, and I had a hard time holding my own in fights with others, but my classmates eventually accepted me because I was good at drawing. I expressed my own desire for power by drawing airplanes with sleek and pointed noses and battleships with huge guns, and I found myself thrilled by the bravery of sailors who, even as their burning ships sank, continued to fire their guns until the bitter end by the men who plunged into the hail of fire and flax spewed forth by an enemy formation's guns. It was only much later that I realized that in reality these men had desperately wanted to live and had forced to be and had been forced to die in vain. That like that paragraph has the same kind of kicker as a Gundam episode. <laughs> Of like, yeah. um, because I mean, and this is interesting if you look at the course of Miyazaki's career, because he has always been a very obsessive artist of military aircraft and things like that, particularly airplanes, and he's a brilliant artist at it. And um, if you look at his work from around this time, on like Lupin the Third, Future Boy Conan, um, up to Nausicaa in 1984. Um, there's a lot of that in there that will remind you, I think, of Gundam. But I think he's dealing with the same kind of push and pull that the show is. And that I think Gundam is very self-aware of like the power fantasy that allows this show and this genre to exist. And what those ideas actually mean. And that's what an episode like Coming Home is about. 
in some sense, and, and other episodes even more pointedly when it's more about the Gundam. Um, and it's a fascinating thing to see unfold in this show. Um, yeah. And so I just thought, I thought that put a good point on it, so I wanted to read that. Yeah, because it also makes me think about, like, one, uh, like a, a repeated piece of symbolism in Coming Home is the wooden puppet doll that was mm-hmm. Amro's toy that has been left at home, which is, like, that's, you know, what the Gundam itself is, is this this artificial representation of the human body in, like, this indestructible form that you can move around and you can imagine Amro as a small kid playing around with this little wooden puppet thingy and then eventually, like... That like he's what he's doing, what he was doing with that puppet as a child is what he's if he was like you know play fighting with it and stuff like that is what he's actually doing now, quite literally, um, with the Gundam in actual warfare. And so, yeah, like I think Gundam as a show is is constantly like aware, and again, like specifically this show of Mobile Suit Gundam because other Gundam shows in the future are not as good about this. I mean, not almost none of them are as good at this as, as Mobile Suit Gundam is, but of being aware of this struggle of feeling empowered by these things, but also being horrified by them. And, and that like trying to figure out like what that means for us as people, um, which is complicated and there's no like easy answer to that. But the show like just looks at that like really complicated feeling and just fucking dives right into it and just messes around in there um, for as long as it can. All right. So I think that's probably a good place to leave it for today. Yep. Um, the book I was reading out of, by the way, is Starting Point uh, by Miyazaki. It's available in English in hardcover and paperback. I have both copies here because I use one for notes and I use one for reading. Um, I was reading on pages 45 and I think 21. Um, just wanted to cite that because that's the academic in me. But yes, Sean, do you want to tell the people what our episode list is for next time? Yes, so for part three of Weekly Suit Gundam, we are going to be watching episodes 14 to 25. So we're going to be seeing a lot more of our, our new friend, Rambo Rao. We're heading towards the Battle of Odessa, and we'll find out what that is. And there's a lot of good stuff ahead. There's an additional note that needs to be made for listeners. There will be a fun, interesting thing we'll get to dive into next time. Because episode 15 of Mobile Suit Gundam has never been officially released in any Western media for interesting reasons. Um, it's on the Blu-ray. No, it is not. It is accessible through some other things that online and may have been wrapped up into to torrents and things like that. Oh. But it is not directly... Uh, it's not on the Blu-ray. It's I not on it the was. DVD Weird. releases. Yes, okay. there's only 42 episodes of Mobile Suit Gundam if you have officially bought any um, Gundam releases. So it is very... Episode 15 is very easily accessible online. Like you can, I think it's even on YouTube if, you, if, for, if viewers want to find it that way. So if you have bought the Blu-rays or have the DVDs, you need to go find episode 15 uh, somewhere else. But we will be talking about episode 15, Cuckoo's Doan's Island. Um, yes, so it's it's interesting why it's not... There's no... It's it's because the episode is like kind of one of the weaker episodes of Gundam, but I still like it a lot. It's not like there's some racist thing or something like that in it that it got cut. Um, but yes, we will dive into what is going on with episode 15 along with all those other episodes from 14 to 25. So, because if you are just watching on the blue, like the physical Blu-rays, episode 25 for you will be different than episode 25 for us. So that's okay. why that's important to point out is this is, this is the list of, of all 43 episodes of Gundam. We're doing 14 to 25. Excellent. We'll see you guys next time. Will you be able to survive? Survive.